Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast in conjunction with Comic Boom. You know what that means. These collaborations herald a DC spotlight. So uh, Rocky and I are going to talk about all the books coming out on May th- or sorry, April 13th, 2021. Uh, six titles today that we're going to cover. A lot of Batman, which, you know, it's DC. Uh, so, yeah, there were some pretty good books this week. I was uh, I was pleasantly surprised, although... I would say, with the exception of probably my favorite book of the week, I had some some issues. I had some problems with each of the particular titles that came out. There was always something that just kept it from being really, really good for me. Um, but still, it was a solid week overall. How did you feel, Rocky? I thought it was. I thought it was an excellent week. I thought it was uh, really good. You know, I was particularly impressed again with Batman. I continue to enjoy Wonder Woman. Joker was was great. And like you said, there are some, there are some minor pitfalls. But uh, for me, I would put you know my criticisms are going to be generally pretty minor here. I'm I'm still you know so far that 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 shit eating grin I had at the beginning about three three four weeks ago when we started this most of most of the grin is still on my face. So I'm still I'm still pleasantly surprised moving forward. Yeah, you know as much as I rail against disliking the Joker, man, that book has been outstanding. Uh, and maybe because it has so little Joker in it, you know, we talked about it before. It's really a, a Commissioner Gordon story, so it's been really great. But uh, but let's start with uh, with Batman the Detective, uh, which is Tom Taylor's, as far as I know, his first time writing a, you know solo Batman story. You know, not in some big event like DC or or what have you. So he's handling uh, the writing chores. What's interesting is Andy Kubert actually gets top billing, which I thought was interesting in the credits page, Andy Kubert pencils and inks, and then Tom Taylor as the writers listed second. I haven't seen that before, except in the new age of hero stories where they were working for the Marvel method and the writer was doing, uh, or the, the artist rather was doing heavy lifting from just a, a general plot that the writer would give them. So not sure if there's something like that going on here, but I did make note of it and wanted to mention. Uh, we've got Brad Anderson on colors and Clem Robbins on uh, letters. So, uh, yeah, this was one of those that I had a few uh, issues with. But you go first. I- I'm curious what your thoughts were about this one. Well, I was I was very pleasantly surprised. Uh, on the one hand, I'm not surprised because it's it's Tom Taylor, and I have high, high expectations with Tom Taylor because he's always that good with DC characters, and he doesn't disappoint here. The Batman, a uh, Batman, the detective take, this is an older Batman we're talking about. And I think like, I think like many of us, I don't know about you, but I, I'm always partial to an older Batman that's a little bit more gritty or a little bit more experienced and not necessarily darker like Frank Miller's Batman, but I, I like a Batman with a little bit more experience uh, looking back on his life. And this is an older Batman. His family is gone. Alfred is gone. And, and he's really concerned about his legacy and what he finds is uh, on a flight on uh, on a flight from Gotham to London, a, a plane is shot down uh, that essentially happens to have been orchestrated such that all the passengers on the plane, somebody, a, a terrorist group, or at least a group called Equilibrium, has been orchestrating the the killings of all the people that Batman has saved throughout his career. And so what, what Tom Taylor has done very masterfully here in my mind is that he's actually set up right away through through the setup 
uh, Batman's mindset that he's an older Batman. He's looking back. He feels he's a failure. He's failed to, to stop crime. He's failed to defeat overall the superstitious and cowardly lot. And he's 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 he feels like a failure despite the fact that he saved so many. And now, whatever whatever amount of people he did save, along co comes this group's group of villains that want to eliminate all the good that Batman has done, all the lives that he has saved. So right away, you know what's at stake for Batman personally, because so much, Bat Bat all that Batman has left at the beginning of this tale is his legacy, and at least the people whose lives he feels he has touched, he has saved, since his family's not around, Alfred's not around. What he's left with, he ends up uh, going to London, and of course we got uh, the Knight and Squire, and in this case, we the Knight is uh, Beryl Hutchinson, and then we got a new character uh, of Squire. Her real name. Her name is Amina, and and this is just this is great character work. There are funny moments here. Once again, Tom Taylor masters the dialogue so well. Uh, Andy Kubert on the art. There's there's just a a powerful. You really get a Frank reminiscent of Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns here, but with Andy Kubert's style. And it's not surprising that Andy Kubert actually, I believe, he even worked with uh, Frank Miller on on the third chapter of the the, the Dark Knight chapter uh, that came out a, a number of years ago, and it works so well. There's. I'm really impressed here. I love the interaction, the dialogue between the rapport between Knight and Squire and Batman. The fight scenes were great at the hospital and how, and and you could see how intimidated the terrorists were because they're fighting Batman and even though he's older and he's not as good as he used to be, they're intimidated by him but and he he's the Batman so he doesn't let it show. He's again, this is just classic great Batman action and Man, I, I don't know how I, I don't know how you can be a Batman fan and not not really enjoy this. Yeah, I would say that's probably true. That's probably a true statement. If you're a Batman fan, you're you're going to enjoy this. Uh, Tom Taylor's very much leaning into obviously the, the detective aspect. We have the mystery: how could this possibly have been orchestrated? Who could be behind it? You know, shooting down a, or causing the, the the crash of a plane that's filled with nothing but people who've been saved by. Batman, uh, and also in a classic Tom Taylor way, there's uh, there's humor injected throughout, uh, just sort of tongue-in-cheek at, at various times. Um, I'm not familiar with Knight and Squire. I don't know if they, they're showing up for the first time. Uh, I did get sort of the impression that they're not. Maybe they're Batman Incorporated characters, or at least Knight is, from the Grant Morrison run. Do you know, Rocky? I'm I'm not sure. I've got you know because I I look back. I actually got so many. I got at least three different incarnations of the Knight and Squire, and and to be honest with you, I didn't even look into it. And uh, actually, I never felt I had to. I just right away I I was I was quite attracted to this Beryl Hutchinson uh, and the characterizations and the rapport and the dialogue and her sense of humor. And despite the fact that she was injured and she was one of the ones on the plane, I, I just thought it really worked. So. Yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, what didn't work for me is the art. Um, and normally Andy Cooper is somebody whose art I love. This is much more blocky and not as dynamic as his artwork. At times, it reminded me of seeing somebody whose art in the past used very fine lines and was very delicate and showed a lot of uh, 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 action, you know, a lot of uh, 
smooth transitions from panel to panel, just a lot of di uh, dynamism, you know, um, and that that wasn't the case here, especially when you look at Batman himself. He's short and blocky with this like marine like crew cut. And there were just times where I got that that feel that is is Andy Kubert heading toward that J.R. J.R. path where everything gets short and squat and more squarish. <laughs> um, there's a couple pages where the art is, is spectacular. Um, uh, he, I don't know if he's trying to channel Rob Liefeld, but the, the, the pouch he's got, so there's this one, instead of having a cape, he's got this coat, right? So he's got his regular bat suit on underneath it with the utility belt with pouches. And then he's got this flowing trench coat instead of a cape. And the trench coat has pouches as well. So he's got like pouches on his pouches almost. Uh, and I just thought it, it was a cool image. Um, but seeing Batman walking around carrying these two suitcases, uh, I, don't, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, and then the next thing that, that really bugged me with the art was the depiction of the gentleman ghost. Now the gentleman ghost, I think is visually one of the greatest comic book villains ever, ever. You know, the fact that it's just this, you know, turn of the century, uh, aristocratic uh, looking figure with a, you know, three piece suit and a top hat and a monocle and a cane, but it's just the clothes is, is spectacular. It's such a great visual image. So the fact that they changed them here to some giant demon, like, like, no, I, I would be like, if somebody had told me, Hey, gentleman ghost is in this book, I would have been excited to see it. And yeah. I'm always excited to see the gentleman ghost just based on the visual and it's a disappointment that because he, he doesn't show up often enough, in my opinion, because he's such a cool looking character. And in the right hands, he can be a really fun villain to uh, yeah. to read about. Yeah. Um, I think he, he showed up here, last, I think, in the pages of Hawkman, I believe, at, uh, a couple of yep. years ago. Yeah. yeah. And before that, he was actually speaking of J.R.J.R. He was in the all star Batman that Scott Snyder wrote and he shows up for like in one issue and it, it cliffhangers with him hanging off the back of this truck that Batman's driving trying to rescue Two-Face from all these villains that are trying to kill him and then he doesn't show up again the rest of the series. I was so disappointed. Um, but even J.R.J.R. drawing Gentleman Ghost when he's drawn correctly in my mind the, the right iteration <laughs> looks great. So it was really disappointing for me to see this I don't even know what I would call this demon-like uh, gentleman ghost it was just it was really disappointing i didn't i didn't care for it at all so uh, while i enjoyed the story and you know tom king does a good job of giving us that sense that you were talking about of you batman mean tom taylor like, tom taylor right sorry tom taylor right. yeah look at that people get them mixed up online with the way they look and i'm here i'm getting mixed up just based on their name yeah the way tom taylor writes batman um and and like you were saying, how he feels like he's he hasn't done enough. He's dedicated his life. Uh, this is an older Batman. He's scarred. He's uh, you know he he's not as fast as he used to be. All that stuff you were talking about, and he's all self aware of that that he hasn't done enough. And he leaves Gotham for London to investigate this crash of an airliner. When he leaves Gotham, he, he even says this may be for the last time. Uh, so he, he's definitely a man sort of channeling that that desperation of trying to make a difference. Uh, obviously he's selling himself short. He's done so much, but he doesn't see it that way. So all that emotion, all that angst is coming through from what Tom Taylor's doing and he's doing it 
really, really well. Um, and then the added part of the mystery, and you know, obviously with the name, the detective, we are going to get a mystery, and it's going to be great to see him using his uh, his brains uh, rather than his brawn, especially as his body is not what it used to be. Uh, I just wish the art spoke to me a little bit more. Like I said, I know Andy Kubert is uh, capable of more than this. Um, I, I don't know. It just feel it feels like his art style is changing a bit, which you know that's his prerogative. Um, but I prefer his older stuff <laughs> to this. Yeah, um, I, I can see just... what you're saying. You make an interesting analogy to John John Romita Jr. That that I think those similarities are there, although he hasn't quite gone full jr no. jr yet because he's yeah. at least no, he's drawn feet and legs so <laughs> yeah but like if you look at the page where uh where batman comes back after fighting all the guys outside the hospital when he comes back in the room and he's talking to squire and she's yeah. asking him who's what's on the end of the cable <laughs> yeah. like that looks very much like jr jr from like the late 90s so you know if you showed me that that's probably who i would guess it was i wouldn't guess andy kubert so yeah, it's it's interesting to see that he's heading that uh, heading that direction. Hopefully, he goes no further <laughs> than he's already gone, because um, the storytelling is still solid, uh, and the layouts are still solid. It's just, man, the the rendering and the figure work just it's not what I'm used to seeing from him. So, yeah, no. Well, the character work is where it shines, and I, I and I think uh, I guess that the art bothered me less i think it's because maybe i'm getting used to the deteriorating frank miller visuals and <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'm more forgiving because it reminds me a little bit of frank miller as well uh but uh it's interesting because frank miller and jr john romita jr and of course andy kubert they've all worked together and collaborated uh their talents together at different periods of time on 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 different yep. titles so it's kind of it's not you know it's that's not surprising given that there are similar artistic sensibilities between the three of them yeah, maybe Andy Kubert wants to go, you know, maybe he is trying to to straddle a line between, you know, sort of what you could consider a current DC house style of Batman and yeah. and the Dark Knight Returns, Frank Miller, you know, because this definitely lies somewhere in between the two, you know, so maybe that maybe he wants it to look a little more blocky, a little more like the Frank Miller type Batman, because this Batman is sort of in between, right, in between what you would think of as the current uh, in continuity, Batman and that Batman from the Dark Knight Returns. So maybe it's purposeful. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, we shall move on. Yeah. Let's head up to uh, Batman Urban Legends number two. We've got uh, four stories just like we did last time. Three of them are continuations. They're part twos of stories that we got in the first issue of uh, Batman Urban Legends. And then we have one standalone uh, single story. So Red Hood and Batman in Cheer part two. That's by writer Chip Zdarsky with uh, Eddie Barrels on pencils and Ebar Ferreira on inks with Juan Ferreira handling the colors. Uh, Marcos Toe does uh, some flashback work in that uh, issue. Uh, the flashback, or the colors throughout, I'm sorry, are by Adriana Lucas with uh, Becca Carey on letters. The standalone story is written by Cecil Castellucci. It's an oracle story. We've got Marguerite Savage on art and colors with Becca Carey on letters. Uh, second part of the outsider story by Brandon Thomas with art by Max Dunbar, colors by Luis Guerrero, and letters by Steve Wands. And then we finish up with the second part of the Grifter story by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Ryan Benjamin, colors by Antonio Fabella, and letters by Seda uh, Temafonte. So uh, kick it off, Rocky. Give us your thoughts. What would you think about this uh, second anthology issue for Batman? 
Well, the first thing I want to say is, I'm while I don't like when they have a whole pile of different variant covers, I do think that the variant cover here is are they're gorgeous. I love the katana variant and I love the red hood variant. They look they look really good. I gotta say, I'm actually still torn. I'm not sure which one of these covers I want to own. I'm I'm not gonna buy all of them, but I gotta say, all of it it's it's really gorgeous. But uh, having said that, kicking off the the stories with uh, Red Hood. Uh, you and I, we spoke at length uh, when we reviewed the, the first chapter of this Red Hood story and we're uh, quite impressed with Chip Sardaski. And this is this continues on with the, with those same themes. Uh, we know that uh, J- Red Hood, Jason Todd, has killed the father of a of a young child that he's a young boy that he's protecting, and this young boy looks up to him. And of course, he doesn't have the heart to tell the boy that he actually ended up killing his father, who was a drug pusher, because his father was really a quite a deplorable human being. And what's what's really good here is. Uh, you know, Trip Sardaski does a great job of once again continuing to build on the theme of establishing some more of the disgrunt, some more of the dysfunctional past of Jason Todd, and this is really a this is really a the second chapter really emphasizes the relationship between parent and child or parent and stepchild because you can juxtapose the relationship, the dysfunctional relationship in many ways between Batman and Jason between Jason, Red Hood, and his mother, between Jason and his mother's, uh, I guess, drug pusher, who it was revealed that Jason Todd actually killed his mother's drug pusher. Uh, I don't recall that ever. I think that's new, isn't it? Or am I, am I, that's a, that's a revelation. I don't recall that. Yeah, I I don't recall ever hearing anything or reading anything about that before either. Because that that's quite extraordinary that that's kind of a new revelation that, wow, no wonder Jason Todd's here. I didn't know he'd ever actually killed his mother's drug pusher. And in any event, we, we have other... Well, we, and I mean, the, the, it, he does kill... he Through his... The cause of his actions does kill him, but it's not... I mean, the intent, intent may not necessarily be there. You know, he's he's trying to protect his mother in a way. He's angry at the situation his mother's in at the situation his mother has put him in so he pushes the guy down the stairs the guy breaks his neck so it may not have been his intention it may have just been him lashing out but clearly the the trauma you know of jason todd may have started much earlier than even we realized that's exactly right and and I, i actually think it's such a simple addition to jason todd's childhood history but it makes so much sense because there's no question, at least this is me reading into it, but I think that's the brilliance of Sardaski here is that it allows the reader, we can draw our own inferences based upon this new revelation. And the revelation I get out of it is that Jason Todd accomplished, actually ended up helping his mother out. His mother ultimately ended up dying, but I think at least temporarily, the death of that drug pressure never exactly hurt his his mother and him. Just like him killing that kid's that the young boy named Tyler, when he killed that Tyler's father, he probably ended up doing a good thing too. And even at the end, it's kind of interesting that that this young boy protects, wants to protect Red Hood from Batman, you know, essentially bringing Jace, holding Jason Todd accountable for the murder of the of the drug pusher, uh, even though that the drug pusher is in fact this young boy's Tyler's father. This young boy is protective of Red Hood because he he feels the Red Hood is a good man. And I think that's a very touching moment because it's helpful for Jason Todd because Jason Todd has never had a high I never I never had a particularly high self-image. He's never thought 
well of himself as a person. And I think that really plays out here because the person that's always hardest on Jason Todd always seems to be Jason Todd himself. He's his own worst critic in the harshest of ways. Even Batman seems to display more compassion toward Red Todd. And in this case, in particular... The young boy, Tyler, really exhibits compassion and love for, for, for Jason Todd, despite the fact that he's known him for only a couple of hours. So I thought it really worked well, this toxic cycle of uh, sort of screwed up dysfunctional parenthood and the different themes and the, and, and the different types of relationships that readers are going to get out of this, no matter what kind of history you bring, whatever your knowledge is, because mileage will vary on the, the knowledge of the history of the Batman universe regarding Jason Todd from reader to reader. But I think all readers are going to get something out of this, uh, out of this uh, second chapter. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And what I would say is this is a, it's a compelling read for a second part of the story. There's not necessarily a lot of action beyond Batman and Jason Todd themselves trading blows. So in terms of, you know, a narrative where they're continuing to, to sort of figure out who's behind these cheer drops and try to get that drug off the street, this is sort of a, not necessarily a setup issue, but but more of a a foundational issue in terms of, like you said, Rocky, building on that relationship that Jason Todd has with Batman and exploring the trauma and, and why he's that way. He, he's distraught after, after lashing out and killing this deplorable human, as you call him, perfect way to sum up this, uh, this boy's, you know, father. Uh, we do find out in the course of the story that his mother is actually not dead. Uh, so she's, she's still clinging to life and hopefully, uh, this, this boy is not going to end up as a, as an orphan, uh, like Jason Todd was. Um, but clearly from, from the earliest time of him experiencing that trauma with his, you know, mother using drugs and, uh, you know, and, and whether he intended to or not killing her, uh, her drug dealer, um, it's Jason Todd is his own worst enemy, right? Like you, you mentioned him being, uh, having a poor self image and being hard on himself, he, he definitely is his own worst enemy. He, he knows he knows the things that he needs to do, uh, but he's just not willing to do them. He kills this young boy's father. And when he calls Oracle, he, you know, he, he explains what he did. And it, it seems like he, he could open up to her. We saw uh, recently, uh, I think it was in a future state story where, he, uh, or maybe it was death metal where, you know, he was showing some, some feelings for, her, or maybe it was three jokers. God, I, it was I don't three jokers. Know. It was three jokers. Yeah, yeah. Three jokers. Yeah. There you go. Where there was uh, some, some kind of emotional sparks there. So it seems like he could open up to her, but when it comes to Batman, who, like you said, even Batman himself was willing to, to give Jason a break. All that happens is the anger comes out and they end up fighting. And and it's not a choice of, of Batman. Batman's not the one it's Jason Todd that can't seem to get out of his own way and realize how much Bruce actually cares for him. Uh, it's like all he sees is the, uh, the sanctimony um, of, of the vow that Batman has made uh, that he'll always hunt crime, that he won't kill. Uh, Jason can't see past that to the, to the man underneath the cowl who cares about him. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Eddie Barrows, on uh, the next to last page of the issue uh it's a full page or nearly full page splash batman standing over jason as uh, he's knocked him down jason's on the ground with a bloody nose batman is standing over him saying stay down don't make me 
And the look on Batman's face, it's not one of anger. Uh, it's one of, of sorrow, you know, that it's come to this with one of his adopted sons that they just can't seem to communicate anymore, you know? Um, yeah. Like a father to a son. I mean, that, that, that yeah. paternal, that, that, that parenting sort of theme uh, and that dysfunctional parental theme here, I think, just runs rampant right through the, uh, the chapter. Yeah, and, and Zadarsky does a great job of channeling that. I mean, when you talk about a, a relationship with Batman and anybody in the Bat family, the relationship he has with Jason Todd is more uh, filled with trauma, more filled with uh, complicated feelings, feelings of guilt, feelings of inadequacy on both sides. Remember? I mean, how much guilt does Batman carry around because Joker beat Jason Todd to death with a crowbar and Batman wasn't there to protect him? <laughs> you know, how much does how much anger does Jason Todd hold for uh, – you know, Batman not being there to save him. That's on top of Jason Todd's own feelings of inadequacy, own feelings of, hey, I let Batman down because I do use guns and I do kill. Batman not agreeing with, you know, the outlook that Jason Todd takes. So this is a great emotional uh, and relationship um, exploration that, uh, that Zdarsky is doing here. I can't really think of anybody who would be better in comics to explore that than Zdarsky. Uh, he, for my money, has be become such an incredible writer with exploring relationships and emotions over the last couple of years, uh, which is a surprise to me because I, I wasn't a big fan of his work for a, a long time. But this is just a great story. The artwork um, is dynamic. It's emotional. The Marcus Toe flashbacks um, give us that same level of emotion, but in a different way. You can feel the the helplessness of the young Jason Todd and the anger he feels. Um, so yeah, I, I think th this is a must read for fans of, uh, of Red Hood. Um, I know it's a little pricey because you're getting, you know, a bigger, uh, issue. It's, uh, I think 64 pages of story. Um, so it is, you know, it is a, a little pricey. And if you're only looking for one of them, if you only care about Jason Todd or you only care about the, uh, grifter story or what have you, maybe you want to wait. I don't know how they're going to collect this and trade, if they'll collect the individual stories or whatnot. But uh, if you are a Red Hood fan, like I said, this is a, a must read in my mind. Yeah, I agree. And uh, kudos to Eddie Burrows on the art. Just really, really eye-catching. Colors are fantastic. Very well done. Yep. So we're off to Grifter. You want to do Grifter next? I can. You want me to start us off? <laughs> yeah, go go right ahead. I, well, I mean, this, I think the second story is the uh, oh, is the it Cecil Castellucci? Yeah. Okay. Well, we can do well. We can do uh, that one first. Cecil. Okay. Cat well, I'll go. I'll go. Yeah, I'll go first. Ghost in the Machine, okay. an Oracle Adventure, as it's labeled. Uh, Cecil Castellucci, like I mentioned, Mar Marguerite Savage, art and colors, Becca Carry on letters. Um, so I've talked before. We talked about it during Future State when Marguerite Savage did the uh, the super woman i think she was Kara Zor-El's superwoman story um how marguerite savage's art it doesn't it's not the best in terms of transition or showing action um it, it's it's almost like a series of uh of pinups here um overall i really enjoyed the story from uh from cecil castellucci it, it's it's really kind of moving things along for for barbara gordon oracle it's almost like hey she's oracle but you know she's no longer combined to uh, to a wheelchair, so we're not gonna go all out and have her be Batgirl in the costume because we know there's worries of overtaxing the the microchip that helps her walk. But she she is more mobile than before, so why doesn't she have a 
kind of her own mobile base of operations. And so throughout the story, we're learning about her set, uh, setting up different sort of little nest around Gotham, different places she can work. Plus she makes herself uh, a mobile uh, sort of tech suit that looks like, uh, I don't know, just like a, a kind of a, a, a jumpsuit or a sweatsuit um, that has all this tech sort of uh, incorporated into uh, into the outfit. So uh, Marguerite Savage, she's great at character design and fashion and all that kind of stuff. And she's great with the colors uh, as well. Uh, but I wouldn't say this art is as choppy in terms of transitions as uh, as uh, Cara Zarel Superwoman woman was, but it is still that it's just, that's not the strength of, um, of Marguerite Savage's art. She just, she's not a, dynamic penciler in in that way but that being said the art does work really well the uh, color work really works really well but what works the best is the voice of uh of barbara gordon here she sounds uh, authentic she sounds to me like what barbara gordon should sound like she's oracle she's one of the most intelligent people in in the dcu and i think sometimes that that gets forgotten and uh, i think cecil castellucci surely gets that uh, I loved her. She finished up Batgirl when it ended. She did the last 10 issues or so. And I, I thought she did a great job. And I was kind of sad to see it uh, end because I thought she was getting it right. And this just reminded me of how great she, uh, she is in writing Barbara Gordon and not, and, and I say Barbara Gordon because it's not just, she doesn't just write Batgirl. Well, she writes Barbara Gordon good or very well as Barbara Gordon, as Oracle and as Batgirl, she gets all those roles uh, right, because they're not all the same. She shouldn't sound the same exactly when she's in the costume versus when she's Barbara Gordon hanging out with uh, with Dick Grayson versus when she's Oracle and she's talking to other members of the Bat family. It should be a little bit different. Um, and uh, I think Cecil handles that really, really well. So I, I enjoyed this story, um, despite the, uh, Marguerite Savage not being one of my, my favorite artists. I mean, I, I love her work in terms of like cover work or pinups whenever she does the DC... Uh, bombshells. I think her art is gorgeous, but I, I don't know. Just for sequential art, her her art's not my favorite. It's just a little too static uh, for my taste. So, what do you think? Uh, I enjoyed this. I I thought it was. Uh, it has a key appearance. Speculator alert! I believe this is the first appearance of a new character called V Ross. It's a Vivian Rosdale, and this is a who is a former epidemiologist. She's uh, into hacking, disease, and computer modeling. And she is the uh, a new arch enemy of Oracle. She's like the counter. She's like a dark Oracle. And I particularly love this issue. And where Marguerite uh, uh, Sauvage, really, her art really works here is that it, she kind of draws draws a very cool looking Barbie. <laughs> now, okay, it's like I, I remember arguing with people when I collect action figures. It's an action figure. It's not a doll. It's not a Barbie. It's an action figure. So I'll call it an action figure. But I really love. There's that one full page, uh, be be beautifully ar artistically rendered page of Oracle wearing her green. Uh, looks like a green Adidas uh, jogging outfit, and it's basically yep. it's a loaded with tech and she's on the run and and she's she's basically mobile and this is this is i'm surprised we haven't seen more of this type of stuff before this is actually a very good idea this is basically her bat outfit i mean and it actually makes a hell of a lot more sense than dressing up like batman and wearing a bunch of uh you know hot hot leather you know i mean just 
that's that's the brilliance of it. That's what I liked, and it's fashionable. The art is beautiful. Now, you know, you and I might not be into the sort of like the fashion design of, of the layouts of all this jazz, but the reality is is that I think this could definitely attract a particular kind of reader, maybe more f- female readers. Uh, this is very well done artistically, and I think it I think it works. The story wise, I thought it was it was it was a little, it was fun. Uh, v Ross is going around. She wants to steal some floppies because she wants to use floppy disks because some of the old that in the the older banks still use older computer systems because they're too expensive to replace. And and throughout the course of the narrative, Oracle excuse me, Oracle pieces it all together and ultimately stops V Ross. But the visuals we get along the way, I thought, worked very well. Marguerite Sauvage does all her art and her own coloring. It, it works. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this worked for me. And I'm, yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, I, I got to say, in, in, you know, I agree with you 100% that this is better than the future state Supergirl tale that Marguerite Sauvage drew. I thought, artistically, this was a better put-together issue. And I think... Even some of the more of the action sequences here, I thought worked very well. What in particular, what impressed me is that there are scenes here where there's an overlap between the virtual world and the real world. And I thought Marguerite Savage did a good job of sort of combining it such that I could I could actually tell. I think the uh, readers can actually tell the difference when a lot of what is taking place is in the virtual world versus the real world. When when Oracle is is wearing that her high tech jogging suit and, you know, perusing through Gotham City and I thought it worked very well very creative and I look forward to uh, you know what more of what Marguerite Savage has to offer because she's really upping her artistic game I think in just the last six months yeah I would agree with that uh, well, next up is the uh, the outsider story Brandon Thomas writing Max Dunbar on art Lewis Square on color Steve Wands on letters uh, this for me was probably my least favorite not to say it was bad uh, I certainly feel like we're getting a lot of katana lately between what we've had in, uh, in in Future State and then here in this Outsiders story. And then we, we had the other history of the DC universe that focused on her. So I'm all for it. Uh, I, I love this version of katana. I love the way her costume looks. Um, we meet, I think, as far as I know, this is the first time we've ever met her her mother-in-law. So we find out she's sort of behind everything that's been going on with the outsiders. Uh, and I love the fact that we're reminded. And again, going back to having just read the other history of the DC universe and, and how close knit that team of outsiders uh, was, uh, we're reminded again in this story, how much these characters do really uh, care about each other. Um, and, and part of what uh, Katana's mother-in-law is so angry about is she believes that Katana is, in some sort of romantic relationship for, uh, with Black Lightning uh, and as replacing her son uh, in, in Katana's heart. And, th- and that's why uh, her son's soul is no longer uh, trapped or encased or living, however you want to say it, in Katana's sword. Um, and so she's angry about that and, and wants Katana to pay. Uh, we know it's just a, a very close Plutonic relationship that Black Lightning and, and Katana have. They both have a lot of similarities in their past with losing their families in different ways and trauma and uh, being, uh, you know, mar- parts of marginalized uh, uh, groups or races or minorities or whatever you want to call it. Um, so all that works really, really well. 
I think the art is is done really well. The colors are beautiful. Uh, I I do sort of miss having Geoforce. Uh, he was one of the my favorite in the Outsiders. Um, so I'm not sure why he hasn't shown up in, in any outsider stories in, in recent time. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's not, it's not the best um, only because I feel like we haven't gotten sort of the, it, it just doesn't feel like a big story that has a lot of consequences. Um, it, it definitely feels more like a Katana story rather than, than an outsider story. At least to this point, it sort of feels like Metamorpho is just there for comedic relief <laughs> yeah, and exactly black lightning yeah black lightning's just there as a plot device um so that the mother-in-law can you know point to katana's relationship with black lightning and say yeah you've replaced my son in your heart with this love for this other guy so it, it hasn't felt like it's all come together yet but it could, it could very well click in the next issue when black lightning metamorpho and and katana are together again you know on, on the same same page, so to speak. So, uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? Well, we we know from Future State, and that at some point, uh, assuming the Future State future is going to happen, but I see no reason why it won't, because it's so closely related to this. We know in Future State, Duke Thomas ends up with Katana's sword, with Black Lightning uh, becoming sort of an energy lightning creature within the sword itself, and so we know that's likely where this storyline is headed. Now, frankly, I really wish we didn't know that because this I'm really curious. If I didn't know the outcome in Future State, I would really be interested in this storyline. One of the things, for example, that I openly ask is it, it seems to me that her mother, uh, her mother-in-law, Shiari, she raises a very good point. Why on earth would Matteo or Masio? Uh, Masio, sorry, who is Katana's husband, why Why would his soul leave the soul sword? Why, why would his essence leave the sword? And it makes sense that maybe he feels that Katana has, a feel, have, have feelings, has feelings for someone else. And that maybe he, because he's within the sword, maybe he knows something about Katana's true feelings that Katana hasn't admitted yet. But when you say that, well, we know that they're just friends. Well, my question is, do we know that? Now, I think you're probably right because we know the outcome in future state, but I would have liked to have had that suspense as a reader to, to wonder ourselves, well, maybe there is something there that Katana is not admitting to herself her true feelings. Maybe Jefferson Pierce wants to be just a friend, but maybe Katana is not being honest with herself because really we know, for example, from the, uh, from the other history of the DC Universe, which was uh, we reviewed last week how great it was about the history of Katana. Katana's only ever had really one friend that she was really close to, and that was a Halo. And so, you know, Katana is someone that probably needs to work on her feelings. So I agree with you. This is a, this was a, a good issue, but I do wish that there was a little bit more history here and we would have gotten that, but for what was revealed in Future State. But overall, writer Brandon Thomas has done pretty good. Max Dunbar, it's serviceable on the art. I wish the art could be a little bit better, but it works. And Colors by Louis Guerrero, uh, Guerrero you know, uh, very colorful. So, you know. Again, I'm I'm interested to see where this is going. I personally would like to see a relationship between Katana and Black Lightning. There, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I mean, we can't, there's so many times we've talked about how the whole future state thing just, you know, ultimately it, it hurts because you 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 take a look into the future and it sort of handicaps 
where where things can go, right? I mean, the one thing that uh, we have going for us is that we know that's a possible future. So it doesn't mean things have to go that way. So it could end up uh, that this isn't the story where Black Lightning ends up in the sword. He could never end up in the sword or it could happen at a later time. We just don't know since that future state timeline wasn't necessarily set in stone. But uh, But you're right. By doing it, by giving us hints about what happened in the outsider story about what happens with Batman about the whole magistrate. We've talked about it at length uh, uh, in the show, how it ultimately it, it, it ruins some of what could be spontaneous reactions from readers because we just don't know. We've seen possible futures. We've seen possible consequences and it sort of colors our outlook on, on what might come as opposed to just letting the, the storyteller, the writers tell the story they want to tell without us having any idea where they're, they're headed. And to that point, Brandon Thomas, the writer of this outsider story is the one that wrote the outsiders uh, features or backups or whatever you want to call them in, in the future state storyline, you know, whereas some other like suicide squad, for example, um, that was Jeremy Adams that wrote it. And now Robbie Thompson is writing the, the regular series, even though we see similarities, we see, you know, Superboy prime or uh, Connor, uh, Connor, Con L, Connor Kent, Superboy, um, is in both. So we know there are similarities there. But I just, man, at this point, I just, Future State just hadn't existed. And they just had gone into just telling these stories, you know, so we wouldn't have any idea where it might be headed. So uh, anyway, on to the last part of the uh, anthology. The, the Grifter story written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Ryan Benjamin, colors by Antonio Fabella, letters by Seda Temofonte. Uh, I have a feeling you really like this. What were your thoughts? <laughs> well, uh, I have it up here on the screen here, but for the benefit of those on the podcast, uh, there's a wonderful uh, picture of, of of Grifter in, in a fighting pose and with the quote, I'm sure in the moment it seemed like bringing an axe to an assassination was a cool idea. <laughs> and it's just so reminiscent. It's just great humor for Grifter. This story continues uh, continues the his his the adventure that he seems to be having and the trouble he seems to be getting into protecting Lucius Fox from the forces of Leviathan who continue to try to want to eliminate or take out Lucius Fox and the humor here I mean and and the what <laughs> the flashbacks I mean writer Matthew Rosenberg does such an excellent job of at first giving us a flashback to when uh, Cole Cash, the grifter, lost his brother Max in an adventure uh, in an earlier uh, altercation many years before when they when they went up against the forces of uh, uh, Mr. Freeze. And of course, we know from last issue that he's been, uh, Grifter has been blamed for the death of Nora Freeze. And so we can expect at some point, Mr. Freeze is going to be awfully upset with that and we can expect that that there's going to be fallout from that but in the meantime he's got to protect lucius fox and the forces of leviathan keep uh trying to take lucius fox out uh speculator alert we have another key first appearance here there's a new character by the name of chance adibi who is the global security head of wayne enterprises she her boss is lucius fox and of course lucius fox is also grifter's box Grifter's boss. Sorry, <laughs> the rapport between Jan Sadibi. There's a, it's almost like there's this immediate sort of sexual attraction and tension between Grifter and uh, Adibi, and it it really plays off well. The humor, Matthew Rosenberg again, just 
just nails it so well. This is just this was a pleasure to read. I just I thoroughly enjoyed this. The art by Ryan Benjamin, I thought really it really worked well. Uh, we eventually, uh, in connection with the Leviathan connection, Grifter ultimately ends up meeting with the Toy Man. And for those that will probably have probably forgotten, the Toy Man, act, uh, Winslow Scott, actually in Bendis's Superman run and Leviathan issues. He actually is working for Leviathan. When Superman revealed his identity, it in, Toy Man was the villain that was inspired to turn to turn to the side of good. And ultimately, uh, Winslow Scott began to work for uh, Checkmate against the forces of Leviathan. And what happens here is that in meeting, having a meeting with Toy Man, it gets interrupted by uh, the Red Hood, who doesn't uh, take kindly to Grifter wandering into Gotham and hanging out with the Toy Man, a former villain. And if you're, you know, there was a time where Toy Man was thought to be a pedophile, but I don't think that's in DC. I don't think that's in this DC's continuity. But in any event, uh, 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 mileage will might vary on the ending here, but ultimately Red Hood does get uh, uh, taken out. And Grifter, again, in, in very typical Grifter fashion, uh, manages to kind of get lucky with the oncoming train and manage to in, manages to in, incapacitate Red Hood and uh, steal some cash from him while leaving him his gun. And again, we're, I'm not, we know, we ultimately know where this is headed again from Future State. Once again, uh, Jace, we're talking about Future State. We, we, I almost don't even want to say what we know from Future State because it's going to ruin this story for readers. And and if future if the events of Future State don't happen, then I'm really wondering why we wasted our time with Future State to begin with. But it's all linked here. But in any event, I prefer to ignore Future State and forget about it because I would actually enjoy this story even more because there's so many questions I have that uh, I would otherwise have the answer to since I read Future State, but I'm really enjoying this. I'm just, again, this this was my favorite story out of the entire issue. I'm loving Grifter. I want him to have his own series. I don't want him to be crammed into a Batman Urban, Levens, Urban Legends anthology. How'd you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I tend to, I tend to agree with you, uh, I, but I'll, I'll add this caveat. I want a Grifter's, and, and we should say, I mean, this is a full 20-page story. So is the uh, the Jason Todd uh, Red Hood story to start. With. So it's it's mm -hmm. as big as you would get in a in a regular standalone, um, you know. It's, and you feel like it's a big chunk of story. So yeah, I too would want a Grifter standalone, but only if Matthew Rosenberg is uh, writing it. I think the art by Ryan Benjamin is is spectacular. Uh, there's it doesn't have to be Ryan Benjamin in art. There's plenty of other guys who could uh, who could do it. Um, I don't think that. Uh, John Davis Hunt is working on anything right now that I know of. He would be uh, somebody that would be great. Uh, he did Grifter in uh, the Warren Ellis, the Wildstorm series, and, and I loved his art there. Uh, but, but regardless of that, getting back to this story, uh, it, it's action-packed from the start. Matthew Rosenberg, is uh, he does an incredible job of giving us humorous dialogue that uh, – isn't over the top. It, it doesn't, uh, you know, beat you over the head. It's, it's subtle humor. It's that quick wit and self-deprecation of, of cold cash that I love. Uh, it's paced very well. Um, the, uh, the action scenes are, the transitions are done very well by Ryan Benjamin. It just feels like a really 
fun comic that has weight, that has consequences. Um, and it's, it's sort of that feeling of Cole Cash not being able to get out of his own way. In, in some ways, he's his own worst enemy, just like Jason Todd is his own worst enemy, but in a different way. Um, it, it, he doesn't have the uh, emotional baggage necessarily uh, or doesn't take himself as seriously as, as Jason Todd does. So it's, it, it's lighter and it comes across as more fun. Um, and you feel like at any time, Cole Cash is only two or three good decisions away from being an out and out hero and having his, his crap together, you know, but he's Cole Cash and you know, he'll never be able to make those right choices. He'll always be the guy that when the doctor, for example, hands him a bottle of pain pills in the uh, emergency (laughs) room, he'll just down the whole bottle. (laughs) What else you got doc? You know, he'll hit on his, uh, you know, he's just introduced to his, who his boss is, right? Uh, the, the new character that you mentioned, uh, and he's already hitting on her, right? He, he just, he can't get out of his own way, uh, but he does it in such a tongue-in-cheek manner that you can't help but <laughs> kind of love the guy yeah. and, uh, and laugh along with him because he doesn't take it, himself uh, too seriously. So Rosenberg is telling the story on that level, but the other thing that he does really well uh, when you dig a little deeper below the surface is he's given us this really cool mystery story. Uh, why is Leviathan after Lucius Fox? Why is Leviathan? Why have they framed Grifter for the death of Nora freeze at the end of this issue? You mentioned um, Jason Todd being taken out by, uh, by Grifter and Grifter, you know, stealing his money and leaving the gun. But what you didn't mention is toy man is taken out as well. Uh, it looks like he's been shot right in the chest and it's sort of set up in such a way that are we supposed to think that Jason Todd has now been framed for the death of toy man or is that one also laid at the feet of grifter? That's a really good question. It's a really good question because we know that Leviathan likely take took out toy man because toy man works for checkmate, but most people won't know that unless they've paid a lot of attention to (laughs) the last year of Superman comics. Yeah, exactly. So is it going to be a situation where Jason Todd is framed just like Grifter has been framed and now they're going to have to team up? Or is it going to be just more more and more uh, nefarious deeds uh, piled up on Grifter that he didn't have anything to do with? And it's only going to make Jason Todd uh, that much angrier and and that much more uh, intense in his pursuit of of Grifter. So, you know, on top of the, the great authentic deprecating voice that Matthew Rosenberg is giving to Cole cash. He's telling a pretty damn good story here too. That's a uh, action packed and fun and, uh, and, and compelling because you want to figure out what's going on here. So even though it's not a, a Batman story per se, you know, it's Batman family. Uh, it, it still has that element of Cole cash is going to have to be somewhat of a detective and kind of unravel what's going on here. Um, and I'll say, I, I mean, I was never a big fan of trying to integrate the the Wildstorm universe into the DC universe proper. Um, I don't feel like it's ever really worked that well. Uh, but it's working pretty well here, putting Cole Cash in Gotham, making him, uh, you know, part of that extended Batman family. I think it yeah. does work. Uh, in a way, he has a lot of things in common with Jason Todd. You know, I've talked about it throughout when I'm talking about this story. But the differences are also very stark as well. So it's, 
you can almost think of them as opposite sides of the same coin. And I, I think they play well off of each other. And I'm happy that it's Matthew Rosenberg who's exploring that uh, relationship because I think he's a, a really talented writer. So I really enjoyed this uh, as well. Um, you know, the, in the first issue, it was, it was kind of a, it was, would have been really tough for me to choose between that uh, the Zadarsky Red Hood story and the Matthew Rosenberg Grifter story. Uh, but after the second issue, uh, the Grifter story is my, is my favorite. It, it's the clear favorite for me. And that's no knock against the, uh, the Red Hood story by Zardowski because it's, it's great. But man, this Grifter story to me is, is yeah. like a nine out of 10. It's, and, it's really doing it for me. Yeah. And I would add, I would add that I would much prefer Matthew Rosenberg has impressed me enough that I would want him. I actually want him to continue the Leviathan story. Uh, and replace Bendis because whatever Bendis touches uh, Bendis I'm more interested in Leviathan in the few times it's been mentioned in this Matthew Rosenberg (laughs) two chapters of Grifter than I was so far in the entire Leviathan fiasco under Bendis how he somehow manages to make Leviathan thoroughly uh, more of a kind of a joke organization and I, I just this approach is much more I feel more ominous about leviathan in this in these two chapters of grifter than i have during the entire bendis attempt to make leviathan this massive threat and that says something that says something so you know this is this is really good this is the way it should have been done in the first place organic organically develop a threat called leviathan this is the way to do it not the way it was done for a year and a half that only managed i think to ostracize people against bendis and against against leviathan in general i mean who's mark shaw who <laughs> yeah exactly exactly that's leviathan well, by the way the yeah let's move on to the uh the second issue of joker uh written by james tynan we have art by guillaume march colors by Arif prianto and letters by tom napolitano uh there's also a backups uh punchline story uh just like we had in the the first issue uh it's also written by James Tynan, the art, or I'm sorry, uh, along with Sam Johns, I should mention, uh, Sam Johns and James Tynan, the fourth, uh, as co-writers. Uh, the art is by Mirka Andolfo, colors are by Ramula Fajardo Jr., and letters are by Ariana Mayer. What did you think of the second issue of Joker? I got to tell you, this, uh, this entire, I, I loved it. I, I loved it. This entire week is riddled with first appearances, and this this issue has the well, I, I think it's I think last issue, the first issue was a cameo appearance by Vengeance, the daughter of Bane. This is I think the first full appearance of Vengeance, the daughter of Bane. So speculator alert, guys, get out there and scoop it up. Cause man, do we have our choice of variant covers here. Gorgeous variant covers. There's a retailer exclusive variant cover with just the uh female Bane uh pulling the the Bane mask over her face. That's going out to retailers, uh one per store as I understand it. There's a Neil Adams cover that is reminiscent of a classic uh, uh Batman cover uh whose number eludes me. And we have a black and white punchline variant and then a standard colorized uh, uh punchline. I think that's a Matteo cover, but uh, I might I might stand to be corrected on that. But in any event, uh don't be don't be fooled by all the great covers. This is actually a great story. I want there to be story-driven spec on this speculation because this is really, really good because the story-driven key 
event that happens in this issue, I almost I almost feel guilty that you're letting me go first because I get to say it before you do. But <laughs> spoiler alert, uh, it's now been confirmed beyond any shadow of a doubt that James Gordon has always known uh, his daughter's secret. That is huge. That is huge. The, the, the character work in this second issue of The Joker is just, you know, just really, really good. James Tynion is doing a... I'm more interested in, in Joker than I am in his in his Batman run, and I'm really enjoying his Batman run. I know maybe you less so, but this Joker, the scenes here are great. the The scenes between Batman and James Gordon here, Tinian knows these characters so well, and it really shows in the dialogue that they ha and the rapport that they have with each other. James Gordon doesn't want to tip his hat to Batman. He tells Batman that he was offered $25 million to find the Joker. He doesn't tell the Batman that that includes killing the Joker because he he doesn't want uh, he doesn't want to go there with Batman. And of course, there's Oracle listening in on the conversation. James uh, James Gordon expertly, you know, He's held accountable by his daughter. Batman makes makes Gordon promise him that you know you're not going to take any actions against the the Joker until I'm before you call me when you do find the Joker. And Gordon says, "Well, that makes sense to me." But you know, Oracle chimes in and says, "He didn't say he's going to call you, Batman. Hold him accountable." Uh, Gordon expertly deflects that by bringing up the fact that you know he mentions his daughter by name and. Uh, that ultimately leads to a conversation between Gordon and, and his daughter, Barbara. And you really get some really heartfelt character moments. And you, you, you really, you feel the pain of both Barbara and Jim and, and the pain that the Joker has caused their lives. And it really, it's just very well done here. It's, even if you're not into, if you know nothing about Batman, if you're just coming on to, if you just are interested in the Joker and you don't know a lot about continuity, you don't need to know all the baggage about the Joker or anything. You could really come into this series literally new and really enjoy it because of this really great character work because all the blanks are filled in. We learn about the network, which is uh, which is a criminal uh, a criminal enterprise that essentially hides villains from from the batman and from from other superheroes so when you're a villain on the run they they hide you we learn about we learn about the criminal family the the Samson family of Hooper County Texas that wants to find the joker and kill him because one of their one of their own was killed on a day when when the joker allegedly was the one that released all the joker gas so we know we, and they're cannibals they're like a cannibal crime family they actually eat human flesh uh there's a there's a great scene where the artist uh, I'm sorry uh, who's the artist on this oh Guillaume March Guillaume March yeah there's a great scene where he draws the cannibal you know the, the the cannibal like dinner table that the Samson family is sitting around talking about how they want to take out the Joker and just so great the joke the scenes between the Joker and this individual by the name of Desmond who's got a scar on his face and he he's the Desmond is this guy who sort of runs the network and the Joker the Joker is aware that a lot of people are after him because of A Day and the Joker seems to be one step ahead of everybody else as you would expect the Joker to be. Man, just so much so much to say. I, I could keep on talking, but I'll I'll just stop, man. I just I just love this. People pick it up. I didn't even you know, there's 
you got to read this to 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 get to you know mileage will vary what you get out of it. But for longtime Batman fans, I got to say this this is great character work. Yeah, and you didn't even mention the fact that this uh, this woman who who hired Gordon, who you know that's the whole reason he he summoned Batman. He wants to know who this person is. He wants to know who he's uh, he's working for. Well, come to find out, she's got links to the Court of Owls. The Court Boom. of Owls themselves want <laughs> the Joker to be taken out. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe part of the reason that I I love this so much is because in my my heart of hearts, my my you know biggest dream would be Gordon actually does kill the Joker and he goes away for an extended period of time, even if it's only a couple of years, uh, you know, in in real time. And, and less than that in, in the DC universe. But man, if we went like a, you know, a couple of years without a Joker title or seeing him show up, to me, that's all to the good. Um, I'm not a big fan of the Joker and I just feel like he's tremendously over, overused, probably the most overused character uh, next to Batman in the entire DC universe. So uh, I would be happy to have him uh, go away. Maybe that's the reason I'm, I'm loving it. Maybe it's just the, the incredible character work, like you mentioned, that, uh, that Tynan is doing here. The scene, like you you said yourself, between Batman and Gordon, where Gordon, you know, it's been so many times where Gordon always feels like he's he's not on the same level as Batman, right? It's there's a little bit, I won't say condescension there, because Batman has tremendous respect for Gordon, um, but he knows so much more. He's always one step ahead of of Jim, you know, and it's it, to that effect of. Gordon's still talking and he turns around and Batman's gone. He doesn't even know that he's gone. The da- dynamic changes a little bit here with Gordon. He's the one that's laying out everything to Batman. Here's what I've been offered. They know the Joker's in Belize. They're offering me $25 million. There's a plane waiting at the airport. By the way, I know that Barbara is Oracle. I know Barbara was Batgirl. The shoe is on the other foot a little bit, so to speak, you know, where it's usually Batman who's got the upper hand and knows more than Gordon. Gordon is, is, almost putting all his cards on the table. You yourself mentioned he, he doesn't tell Batman that uh, he's supposed to kill the Joker and he doesn't uh, agree necessarily to call Batman when he does find the Joker. And of course, Oracle Barbara Gordon calls him out on that. Hey, Batman, he didn't say you got to sort of read between the lines. And of course, that being great character work as well, because of course, Barbara Gordon knows her father uh, and, and, the next best scene in the book is when Jim, you know, <laughs> Barbara says, Hey, you got to come and see me. Now you, you had your, you know, one-on-one with Batman. Now that I know that, you know, we need to have a talk as well. And, and Jim sort of not necessarily wanting to have that talk, but knowing that he, that he has to. And that sets up the second best scene in the book, which is, which is Jim talking to Barbara and them talking about how much pain the Joker has caused them. And them coming to an understanding, uh, and and I love that. It feels very authentic, right? Gordon doesn't know what to do. He, early on in the book, he says, "I don't know what decision to make, so I'm not going to make a decision until I need to." In his mind, he's going to wait until the last moment, until he's got the Joker in his sights, and then decide. Um, and then Barbara sort of takes that that plan off the table, and uh, he makes a new plan. He makes a new agreement with her, saying, "Okay, how about this?" How about I won't kill him unless I can convince you. Unless, so he's not going to kill the Joker unless he has the okay from Barbara. If he can bring Barbara around to his way of thinking, if, 
if whatever unfolds through the rest of the series happens in such a way that that Jim and Barbara both agree the Joker needs to, to go down the final solution, then that's what'll happen. So uh, I, I love that they have that sort of faith and trust in each other. They're the only two that are left, right? Uh, Barbara's mother's gone, Jim's wife's gone, uh, and James Jr.'s gone. So yeah. they're sort of relying on, on each other and, and the scene between them is, is great. Plus I got to mention that when Barbara gives him the special satellite phone so that he can have access to, the back computer and all its resources and uh, and the fact that she gives it to him and it's red. Uh, and he says, why is it red? Well, you've lost the last three phones I've given you for Christmas. And he <laughs> says, you think I can't lose a red phone? <laughs> like it's just as easy <laughs> for me to lose a red phone. Uh, and much like a mission impossible phone. Uh, if he doesn't check in at least once a day and the phone becomes lost, it will self-destruct. So I wonder if he'll be able to use that at some point and have it, uh, have it actually be an advantage. So yeah, there's a lot, a lot to like here. Um, I don't know how I feel about vengeance daughter of Bane uh, yet. I, I don't know that that's necessary. Not sure. Uh, other than Tynan just wanting to, I mean, Tynan, I feel like has created more new characters for DC comics than any creator has created for any, uh, anything other than self-published for like the last three or four years in his Batman run. He has created like it feels like twenty characters, which is yeah. far and away more than anybody else has. So I guess we'll see if she ends up being uh, anything. I did like the character of of Des, uh, who sort of runs the the criminal resort, uh, the network organization. Yeah, the network. So, yeah, he's he's interesting as well. So yeah, there's a lot to like here, and the fact that once again we get very little Joker on the page, but what we do get feels authentic, like you said. Joker is aware of, of what's going on, that he's being blamed for a day. He didn't have anything to do with it. Um, what he's done in, in uh, going to, he actually doesn't go to the network resort. He goes to a house a few miles away. The, the, the neighbor of the network safe house kills them. And Dez shows up and says, you got to get out of here. You killed our neighbor. He was you know influential. He has a lot of powerful friends and Joker's like, well, hold on. I actually did you a favor because there's going to be people coming for me and you wouldn't want them to come to the network resort and compromise the network. So you're actually going to help me defend this place. It makes a lot of sense when you think about it. And that's the kind of Joker that I can get behind, you know, that that's not, he, he's thinking ahead and he's a couple steps ahead, but he's not so far ahead that he, he would really be a worthy foe for, for Batman or Batman wouldn't be able to figure it out or, or that sort of thing. So um, I like the whole idea of Gordon going against the Joker because that's a more, level playing field that I can buy into the Joker sort of being at that same level as Gordon. Whereas I feel Batman should be so far ahead of the Joker that it shouldn't even be a, a contest. Um, as far as the art goes, it's sort of interesting. Uh, Guillaume March, the first time I really remember seeing his art was on Catwoman when new 52 started, his line weights were so much lighter than uh, his art didn't have the same weight to it that it does. It was more delicate. Um, yeah almost more like sort of good girl or bad girl, depending on your point of view, art from the nineties, little, a little cheesecake. This is more, his art style has evolved somewhat. And it sort of reminds me of Neil Adams. It's very similar yeah. to Adams in terms of the amount of detail he puts in the anatomy, the line weight. So uh, I think the art is solid, but it's, I, I don't know if I like this style versus that he's evolved into versus his, his previous style where things were a little bit 
lighter and uh, I think the transitions were a little bit smoother. But uh, all that being said, I think the art does work. Um, but I wouldn't mind if it was a little cleaner, but that's just my, you know, my personal taste. Yeah, his Gotham uh, City Sirens is a classic run where all his covers are gorgeously yeah. rendered. And it's eat there. His yeah, Gotham City Sirens yeah. is eating up the spec market. Yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah, and that was his older style where he had the the lighter line weights and you know, very beautiful women where is this it's just a little a little harsher. It's not quite as clean. So yeah. uh as far as the, the backup story with um with Punchline and, and Bluebird, I thought it was okay. It, nothing special. Uh, it felt very much like a, a transitional chapter, this chapter two. The best thing about it is Orca showing up at the end as the <laughs> ace of spades for the Royal Flush Gang. Um, I know there's no chance of this happening, but it would be great in chapter three to see Orca bite the head off Punchline and her go away forever. Uh, I know that's, I know that's not going to happen. I'm not a fan of the character, um, but it, it was fine. I didn't think it was anything special. I don't really have anything else to say about it. The art was fine. You know, it was just okay. It's just a Punchline story. Meh. So you, you I, may have liked it more than me. Uh, well, I, I was a little bit disappointed in it. I, I think it's both in terms of the story and the art. First, I have to say that, you know, the the art itself, I don't think that Mirka and Dolfo is the right artist for Punchline because I think that, and now this is my own, obviously my own opinion, but her her art, she would, she her artistic style is, I think, would be more appropriate for a Harley Quinn quite frankly punchline has yeah. to stand out as a darker harley a darker she's the opposite and she has to there has to be a little bit more murko andalfo doesn't draw punchline or any of the characters here in a menacing way and this takes place in a prison for god's sakes and i i felt like this was a bunch of like you know you know harley quinn like you know dancing dolls running around in prison it just i, I never felt any of the gravitas i never felt that any of the danger uh just to give this takes place the entire issue takes place for the most part in blackgate ben penitentiary and the ace of spades is a character that punchline essentially uh humiliated uh, in the first chapter and it's the ace of spades who wants to retaliate against punchline by hiring orca and and that's juxtaposed uh, between Bluebird investigating Punchline's past by by investigating Punchline's former best friend Aiden Priest, uh, who uh, they used to go to I guess school together, and so Bluebird is finding out some of the secrets that lie in, in Punchline's past, which I think can be very revealing because I do think that Punchline can be a very deadly villain because of her what I'm assuming to be her ability to manipulate the media and to manipulate others, but. She's drawn in such a, almost an innocent looking, it, artistically I think it does not reflect the true menace of her character and that's why this fails and, and it's, I think it's a, it's a miss for me because I, I kind of changed my mind a little bit because I was wondering what was bothering me about why this second chapter missed for me. And that's because of the art. And by the way, I love Mirka and Dolfo's art. I just think it's inappropriate for this. I, I think it would it should have continued with Jorge Jimenez's uh, style of punchline. Punchline came across as more menacing during the Joker War. She seems almost like she she seems like a, a harmless afterthought here, who's more of a narcissist than someone who's an actual threat. And it just didn't work for me. Yeah, she barely shows up in this story. She's only in a couple panels. Yeah, it's more the Royal Flush Gang. So, yeah. Anyway, 
Uh, let's move on to uh, Wonder Woman 771, written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. Art by Travis Moore, colors by Tamara Bonvion, uh, letters by Pat Brousseau. And then we have the, the backup story, which is, uh, which is written by, uh, let me get there, uh, Jordi Blair, who's most known as a color artist. Uh, the art is by Paulina Gancho, colors by Kendall Good, and letters by Becca Carey. Uh, I'll start off by saying we meet the DC version of Thor, who comes across as uh, a real dick, I gotta be <laughs> honest. He's, he's pretty full of himself. Uh, and it's clear that Diana has, uh, no, no love for him. So yeah, that, I thought that was actually pretty fun. The exchange and, and, uh, kind of authentic when you think about it. Um, the Marvel Thor are clearly very heroic and, uh, you know, longstanding character and people love him, especially the fact that Chris Hemsworth plays him in the MCU and women fawn over him and, and whatnot. But if you go back and look at actual North mythology, the way that, that Thor acts here is much more true to how he's uh, depicted in that North mythology, very full of himself, yeah. uh, very much a, a warrior. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a product of its time, of course, uh, you know, very condescending to women and, and whatnot. So um, it, it comes across the way it's intended here, I think. Uh, so, so I thought that was pretty fun uh, as far as the, the story itself and the characterization of Diana uh, what I love about this is even though that she doesn't have her, her memories, she doesn't remember that she's Wonder Woman, she's starting to get – things are starting to sound familiar. She's starting to come become comfortable and remember the fact that she is somewhat of a hero. Um, and so it's even without her true memories and her true knowledge of who she is, the fact that she's inherently heroic comes across. And I, I love that Conrad and Clunan are getting to that. You know, They're bringing that out. So uh, I, that's probably my favorite thing about the story that they're uh, telling. The fact that Dr. Psycho shows up here, I thought was fun and interesting as well. He's a classic Wonder Woman villain, but we're getting sort of this esoteric story told in this, uh, I don't even know what to call it, this fantastical realm of, of, uh, of Valhalla. We're not even 100% sure that's where it is. So yeah. the fact that Conrad and Clunan were able to bring a character in that ties back to classic Wonder Woman stories I thought was, uh, was done really well also. Uh, so all in all, this story really worked for me. Uh, it sets up a really cool narrative going forward with Wonder Woman. She makes a, a deal with this serpent that lives at the bottom of the, the tree of life where she's, uh, she's got to bring the, uh, the serpent, an, an eagle egg, this giant eagle egg to eat. And in return, the serpent's going to give her the key that she needs to go and rescue her, the friend that she made in the, in the first part of the story. Um, and the only way she can figure out how to get inside to get the key, because they know the, that the serpent's going to double cross her is to actually hide within the egg itself. So that, so that's her plan. She's going to let herself be swallowed by the serpent by hiding in, the, in this egg. So, uh, I imagine the next story is going to be her fighting inside the serpent. I imagine it's going to be somewhat <laughs> metaphorical. You know, yeah. she's going to be inside the serpent. That's going to be a whole different kind of fantasy-like world. So this whole idea of, you know, being eaten by a serpent and being in Valhalla and having Thor. I mean, Conrad and Clunan are really diving into not just Greek mythology that typically is where 
uh, Wonder Woman stories are rooted in, but mythologies of all different sorts, uh, you know, North mythology, um, the idea of a serpent, you know, that can could be considered Eastern uh, myth- mythology. So uh, I love the fact that they're just kind of pulling in all these different myth- mythologies to tell this really cool Wonder Woman story. Um, I think that Travis Moore art is pretty solid. It's not as dynamic as last issues was. Um, if anything, I thought the color palette didn't work for me. It, it's a lot of purples and pinks, and I felt it was a little bit one note, um, whereas I didn't feel that way in the first uh, in the first issue. So I'm not sure why Tamara Bonvillon made the choices that she made. I would have liked to see a little bit more varied uh, color palette, but for the most part, I'm enjoying this story, but I, I did, I think, based on the art and the color work, I did enjoy the first issue, uh, first part of the story a little bit more. Uh, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Well, first, I want to give a shout out to the variant cover. Joshua Middleton does a fantastic uh, cover B for this of Wonder Woman holding a sword. It looks absolutely gorgeous. I have a feeling that that's going to be one where people are going to want to pick that up right off the shelf as soon as you possibly can. Cover A has the uh, serpent that you referred to on the cover. The serpent's name is Nidhogg. And uh, he's the serpent that wants, uh, puts in, in exchange for Wonder Woman finding him an eagle egg to eat. He will supposedly give Wonder Woman the secret of the keys to the Valkyrie. The Valkyrie have disappeared. The warriors, uh, in particular, her friend Siegfried that she met in the first issue, the warriors have di- are slowly disappearing. In other words, when they're getting, when they're, when they're fighting at Valhalla and they're, and they're, they're dying on the battlefield, they're not showing up in Valhalla, which is the Norse god version of heaven. They're not showing up so something's happening something's screwing up the mythology and wonder woman doesn't know what it is and so she ends up going on this quest and (laughs) i really like this this was there's actually a lot of humor here in particular i like that wonder woman goes has a conversation with thor that you alluded to thor is his typical very traditional norse god self not to be confused with the marvel's thor the red-headed thor is sort of arrogant uh chauvinistic misogynist saying, you know, I'm God, I'm a God, don't worry about it, just, you know, don't worry about Siegfried, he'll be fine. And so she goes with, she takes her squirrel with her ratatosk, and they take off, and they're, they're looking, they want to follow, you know, Wonder Woman figures that, well, let's, let's follow where the sword, where are all these swords that we, we are using? Thor uses all these weapons, I have this, I had this great sword, Siegfried had a sword, who makes these swords? And of course, the dwarves make the swords. And I find it funny that when they go to find the dwarves, it ends up being Dr. Psycho, who is in, for, in fact a dwarf himself. <laughs> and it's very curious, Dr. Psycho's appearance here, because he apparently claims that he's there, he's astral projecting himself. So that's a mystery. I, You know, we don't really know much more detail about that. What on earth is Dr. Psycho being uh, there for? Wonder Woman's memory, or Diana's memory, is only slowly coming back. I like the fact that she takes an ordinary rope and uses it on Doctor Psycho, and and like and and a great part of the narrative, one of the best lines in their narration is the line, and I'm I'm paraphrasing that even a uh, even a, a any any rope any rope can can bring out the truth, like any rope can be a magic lasso in the right hands, and it I, I like that because it says a lot about Diana that she's. Uh, uh, that that that's what she brings to the table, regardless of whether she has a weapon or not. She really is Wonder Woman herself has a, a manner of bringing out the truth of things, even when she is in a state where most of her memory is lost and she's trying to regain it. Somebody is trying to to pull Wonder Woman out of this dream. Somebody is trying to help Wonder Woman. We don't know who it is, but 
I really like where this is headed, uh, or at least I'm, 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 I don't know where it's headed, but I'm curious. This, you know, as you said, she was swallowed by the serpent at the end. Clearly, she's hiding in the egg. She clearly has a plan of some sort. Uh, the art here by uh, Travis Moore is just, it, it's beautiful. I agree with you that it's not quite as, not quite as, it doesn't quite hit with the same punch as the first chapter, the first issue, but it uh, still, it was it's pretty good and a welcome change from uh, the Wonder Woman issues that were leading into this. So uh, overall, I'm, I'm quite impressed. And yeah, we, I agree. Uh, yeah. The backup, backup story lessons learned. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that we need to spend that much time on it. We talked about it in length last time, how it feels very much like a, uh, it's aimed at younger readers, which is sort of disparate with, the way the first story feels, you know, like I feel like the second story I could give to my nine-year-old daughter to read and she would understand it. The first story, no chance. Um, <laughs> that being said, I think the second part of young Diana and lessons learned, it levels up the story in such a way that it, it, when I read the first part, it was fine. You know, it wasn't anything that was terrible. Uh, I thought it was fine. It definitely felt like it was aimed at younger readers. When I read this one, it feels like there's a lot more here for readers of all ages uh, because we find out that there's some some lost history for the Amazons that Diana wants to learn about, that they the Amazons themselves, the, the, the librarians and the keepers of, of the Amazon lore may not even know. And Diana is taking it upon herself to go and search out the, the lost books and scrolls and whatever so that they can have their, the, the full knowledge, whether it be good or bad. Um, and that idea, I think, is a, is a much more grown-up idea, a much more adult idea. And so after reading this second part, I'm personally more invested in this story than I was previously. Um, everything else is just as good as it was uh, the, during the, the, the part one. Uh, I think Jordi Belair gives great voices. Um, it's a little expositional, a little dialogue-heavy would be the only uh, nitpick I have. But she does give uh, authentic voices to these Amazons. And I think the art is, and color work is uh, is spectacular, and it does sort of convey that all ages feel that I, I think they're going after for the story. So, again, I hope this is collected in its own kind of trade because I'd love to be able to to purchase it on its own to give to my daughter to read. So, what do you think, Rocky? I agree with you. There, there's nothing wrong with this tale, other than the fact that I would. This is well. I guess it's a. I, I will criticize it to the extent that it's basically just one Amazon telling a story to Diana, to young Diana. So they're telling the story and it's, I guess they're showing it in sort of a imaginary background and the, the art's all well and good. I just think this is, uh, I'm going to reiterate my, my comments from the, the first, the, you know, issue 770, the issue before this one, that quite frankly, I would have much preferred a backup feature. Tell me the background of Thor that we just finished reading in the, in the first in, you know, that we just got to meet more fully in this, in the, in the, in the main story or the backstory of Siegfried, the warrior that Wonder Woman is looking for of German lore and history. That would have made more sense and have been, I think far more interesting and would have created more interest in the main storyline. This is something that should be a digital first. Uh, I, again, I wanted. I do want to give compliments to the writer Jordi Belair because I do think this works for the demographic that it's aged for, and the art by Paulina Ganushu, and the colors by Kendall Good. I mean, look, I I got no complaints about it. It's it's good, and certainly, you know. But I I, I don't 
I just find it to be sort of a kind of forgettable tale. And there, to me, placement is important. And when you have two styles of stories like this that are so glaringly different in tone and, and approach, I just think it's a kind of a poor editorial decision to put them together. Yep, I agree. Uh, all right, let's move on to uh, Superman number 30 from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Scott Godlewski. Colors by Gabe Eltiab and letters by Dave Sharp. I'm going to let you go first on this one. I have a feeling you may have liked this one more than I did. Well, <laughs> well you might have assumed incorrectly, my friend. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you know what? Look, th this uh, – look, okay, let me, let me give you the, the – the, I'll start with the positive. This does have some good moments of Superman, or pardon me, Clark, Lois and Clark, and their what appears to be, I would say, a thirteen or fourteen-year-old Jonathan Kent, and they're they're playing miniature golf at an amusement park of some kind, and it's Superman figures it's a perfect day because he's with family and it's perfect. And uh, I hate to say this, and because I'm the, I try not to let continuity bother me with the story, but. And I realize we just came out of death metal, but this story, in my view, I don't know how this story could possibly exist because John Kent was, when he was this age, there's no, he was trapped on a volcano on Earth 3 uh, in another universe. But of course, that's not the case anymore, but he's aged up. But I don't, this this whole story, it I, I just can't get my head around the fact that, you know, he's drawn the the art here uh by who's the artist scott godlewski scott godlewski i mean i i think there was a little screw up on the art because i think that john john looks different ages at different parts on on the page i think at the beginning he looks like he's like a 13 or 14 year old john kent which he can't be because he his parents never they never experienced a day like this with him when he was that age or looked that age. And then he looks 17 or, or eight, he looks 17 years old. Later on, he looks older when he's with uh, his, his father, when they're on that other planet. And, and I, but I get the message. I get the message. And so it's a, sort of an unfair, maybe an unfair criticism for me to bring in continuity when we're post death metal, but I'm sorry. It bothers me. It, it really is. Does and you can you can tell that DC is desperately trying to uh, you know Philip <laughs> Kennedy Johnson or he's desperately trying to get people to sort of forget about the fact that you know John Kent was aged up and I just can't but the message here is like I guess it's it's okay I just I I wasn't it it just never it never really resonated with me I just. Uh, I I never I wasn't particularly happy with this uh, to to show how disappointed I I am with this and how it's getting worse for me because I gave this the benefit of the doubt I took notes on everything that I read every every story that we we're reviewing <laughs> and this is the only one that I didn't bother because <laughs> I thought to myself what's the point because I really don't have much to say I think this is derivative this isn't saying anything new about Superman. This is this is imagining a relationship between Superman and his son that can't possibly exist because this is a this has to be a dream because Superman and Lois never had a day like this with John Kent when John Kent was this age. It doesn't make any sense to me. He was I mean, we just got finished through numerous storylines by the same writer who was telling us, even in Future State, that 
he's that John Kent spent his formative years in the 31st century. And then before that, he was trapped in another dimension. And now all of a sudden, we, we, see, we seem to have this perfect day when they're together. I, I guess they're entitled to a day here and there. But it's just to, I don't know, I, I'm actually probably in the room. <laughs> I'm, I'm being very cynical on this. And I know that's unlike me because I've been so, I've been so happy with the rest. But uh, it was bound to have a stinker this week. But this one was a miss for me. It just, I, I, I can't get past the fact that they've screwed up John Kent that badly and for me to just focus on the fact that John Kent is all worried about you know his you know his dad dying and and what have you I don't like the storyline I don't like where it's going I I I know where it's headed I'm sorry I'm not going to be particularly insightful on this particular review there Jace but <laughs> I don't really have much to say I thought this was derivative I didn't I didn't I'm not, I didn't even talk about the main story proper about them going to the other planet and I, it just, I just didn't care. I thought, why, why are we having a, a pointless story with him and his son on another planet? There's so much that we need, we need, we need more character work and a, and a grounded Earth tale between these two. And this, this tale of father and son, when, when, when they're older, on and trying to use, I guess, the relationship of of this other alien species as a metaphor for their own dysfunctional relationship or struggle in their relationship. It never worked for me. It, it just straight up never worked. And I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, here's, <laughs> here's, here's the problem for me. So what you're talking about, I, I noticed right away as well. Well, actually, before I even get there, let me, let me talk about the variant cover by Inhook Lee, which I know a lot of people love his art. And the first thing I thought when I saw that was, why do Superman and John Kent both have jug handles for ears? Like why, <laughs> why their ears are gigantic. <laughs> what reference did this guy use? I've seen hundreds of covers he's done and never have the ears been so pronounced. It, it looks like freaking, uh, uh, what's his Ron, Ron Howard from uh, the Andy Griffith show with the ears sticking out. Like it's just That's unbelievably bad. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, just terrible. Yeah. Um, People are now yeah, going to be that, Googling. That's... They're, they're going to be Googling Ron Howard now, now that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that kind of bugged me, but I'm like, okay, whatever. I don't have to get that cover. That's fine. Um, but, yeah, then we get to the title page, and, and John's there. And, yeah, like you said, he looks 12 or 13. Uh, didn't make any sense to me. And, and I figured, well, it's just, you know, drawing people and making sure that the kids i should say drawing teenagers it, it's it's tough it's challenging i've heard from artists before it's hard to get it right so that the correct yeah. age comes you know along but the problem with it is that so many of us superman fans are are, are so against the idea of this artificial aging up of john that bendis did we just hate it we've talked about it ad nauseum um you know philip kenny johnson himself has talked about it and how he didn't he didn't feel it was right for him to just as soon as he comes on the book, just switch it back because then it makes people feel like, well, why did I read what Bendis wrote? Well, that's a legitimate question all of us should be asking. But whatever, <laughs> that's that's Johnson's, uh, you know, that's his prerogative to, to not do that. Sure. But the problem is we most of us don't like that it was done. And the fact that you're not getting the, the age right visually of John Kent re is bringing up those bad feelings and that animosity that we feel. And that's bad enough. But then in the story itself, when 
because it's narrated in the the first person by uh, by Superman himself. He's talking about it. He's beating us over the head with, "Hey, I missed out on all this time." Exactly. Blah, 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 blah. And I know that Johnson, you know, he's talked about the fact that the fact that uh, that John Kent has gone through all this trauma, trapped in the volcano with this evil version of his dad. And going, you know, born in one world, grows up in another one in hiding, aged up, come back. We've had th- this hints that he could become some despot in the future. All this stuff, like everything that that Kennedy Johnson is doing is continuing to beat us over the head with this aspect of DC comics right now that we all hate. Just give me a goddamn good Superman story and I don't have to think about the fact that you messed up Jonathan Kent. You know what I mean? Just give me a goddamn good Superman story. Why is it so hard? It used to be yeah. we just couldn't get a good DC movie for some reason. Now we can't even get a, uh, a a good DC Superman movie, I should say. Now we can't even get a good DC Superman comic. Like, what the hell is going on? It shouldn't be that hard. You have plenty of people who understand Superman, like Mark Wade, like Tom Taylor, like uh, Robert Venditti. You know, like I, I can't wait till Robert Venditti's Superman 78 comes out so I can actually get some good Superman stories. <laughs> Tom King's Superman Up in the Sky. I'll just go read that again instead of reading this because you're right. As far as the alien species and what's going on, it's very derivative. It's very vanilla. You could swap it out with anything. It seems like the only reason that they exist is, is this new species and, and new di- dynamic between the, the alien parents and the alien kids uh, in Superman's own words, oh, they don't care about each other. They see each other as rivals. Okay, why don't you hit me over the head again, Philip Kennedy Johnson, with another aspect of the story where you're trying to you know, juxtapose this alien species and their parent-child relationship versus the way John sees his relationship with his father, knowing he's going to replace him someday and he's never going to live up, and in that way they're rivals. Like, oh, my God, talk about the most ham-fisted storytelling like this, this is just bad. There's no other way to say it. Uh, I tried <laughs> to be positive. I tried to keep my hopes up that Kennedy Johnson would give us something good. I had my doubts. I didn't think he was up to uh, uh, taking on a, such a complex character in Superman, someone who's so hard to get right, just because I hadn't read very much of his stuff and he hasn't been around and had the experience. I think he's doing his best, but I think this is not working at all. Um, it, it's, it's derivative, like you said. Uh, it's ham-fisted with the, the relationships between the aliens and their parents versus Superman and John. And it's constantly reminding us of what Bendis did that we all hate. So just stop it. Just stop it. Either de-age John or put it in the past and he's 17 and just give us good stories going forward. You know what I mean? Like this whole idea of wanting Sing to explore it, the trauma, <laughs> yeah. like wanting to explore the trauma of this is giving yeah. me goddamn PTSD. Yeah. I'm yeah. done. I'm so done with this. It's getting to the point. I'm just going to buy the Superman as a collectible and just bag it and put it in my box and not even read it anymore. It's getting that bad. Yeah. I and hate it. I, I think this, I, I really think the, the more appropriate approach is, I don't think that uh, the you know John Kennedy Johnson should be subtle about this. I think he should be in your face about it because I think that if a seven-year-old kid or pardon me a ten-year-old kid didn't see his parents for for seven years and came back after seven years and he's seventeen years old, I think that one of the 
primary topics of conversation they would be having all the time would be about, you know, reestablishing that relationship, talking about the things that they missed. But yet th- there seems to be, th- they seem, they seem to often avoid the topic and they're, they're never dealing with it head on. And, and, and John is like, you know, he, he doesn't really seem to be talking about it in the one, on, in one moment, they seem to be perfectly fine. Superman is perfect. He seems fine. All of Superman's angst, he keeps inside. He doesn't talk to his son about it. His son doesn't talk to him. And then when they do, it's always surface level stuff. There's very, very, there's no character work here. When, when, and there's no excuse for it. Because when you look at, like, look at Jordan and Batman. Uh, now, Jordan and Batman are different characters, but the character work and and the respect, and they have a deeper conversation, and they don't technically even know each other that well. I mean, I mean, they they do, but you, you get my point. This is family. This is Superman and his son John Kent, and you, this is surface level Walton's type of conversation between father and son, with no recognition of the trauma that must have existed before. And now we're we're not even sure if the trauma existed. Did did was John Kent even in Earth Three anymore? What's the history post post Death Metal? The failure to address it, but yet in, it we're we're supposed to is did it happen or didn't it? It is the elephant in the room that the writer is ignoring, but yet not ignoring. You know, like you said, it's kind of in your face one minute and then not the next. It's like, well, what is it like? To me, it's like it's like trying to suck and blow at the same time. You can't do it. I mean, make up your mind. You know, pick pick an approach and stick to it. But but this middle of the road approach where, well, you know, you know, sometimes they talk about it and sometimes they don't. And then all of a sudden they have this perfect day and they don't really talk about it. And then he's he's the he looks like he's the wrong age. And then it, I don't know, like like I said, sorry, I, I just I, I could babble on and on about it. But the whole thing just irritates me. And and it's part of this is my ego because I like to sound more coherent when I give a review. But I'm just constantly I'm just frustrated. I'm just frustrated by this. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, I give Kennedy Johnson all the credit in the world for wanting to explore it and talking to me about wanting to explore it. And to your point, then explore it. Stop giving us metaphors and, and oh, look, this a, this alien race and their relationship between their uh, offspring and their parents. It's, a, you know, compare and contrast that. No, just sit them down and do whatever you got to do to get through it so we can put it behind us because we're tired of hearing about it, honestly. Yeah. You know, that's just where I come out. Um, and I, I know Johnson loves Superman and I know he's, he wants to put out a good story. Um, but it, like you said, it's just, I don't think it's working. I don't, I don't know if he doesn't have a handle on cares. I, I, I don't know. Um, it just doesn't seem to be getting there for me. So, uh, anyway, let's, let's move on. Uh, we're finished on a high note here with, uh, with Rorschach number seven. Uh, are we going to avoid Empire. ambush bug? Oh, uh, uh, uh. Oh, I forgot about Ambush Bug. No, go go ahead. Yeah, there is the, uh, the backup uh, <laughs> well, we Ambush Bug story in uh, in Superman number 30. And I'll just say I've never been the biggest Ambush Bug fan, uh, but I did, I did enjoy this uh, quite a bit. Um, I thought the art was, uh, was really good. Um, so it's written by Sean Lewis and – Again, I'm I'm not the biggest Ambush Bug fan. I haven't read a lot of Ambush Bug stuff, so it's hard for me to say whether he gets the the voice of Ambush Bug down right or not. Um, but I enjoyed it. Uh, Insect and War uh, is what uh, 
Ambush Bug himself refers to it as. The art by Sammy Basri is done really well. Very bright colors by Ulysses Ariola, which suits an Ambush Bug story. Dave Sharp on letters. And w- what's cool about these backup stories is, you know, they're, they're tales of Metropolis. And so we're getting different characters of, of Metropolis sort of starring in each one. And we're getting other characters of Metropolis as supporting characters. But it seems like there's going to be this thread that's going to run through them all. Uh, you know, the first story was about Bibbo and Bibbo shows up in this one. Um, this one's about Ambush Bug. And then the next one we're told is going to have uh, Gangbuster and uh, and Loose Cannon. But I'm sure we'll see a lot of these other characters show up. So they're, they're, they're fun. Um, do I think it's worth the extra dollar? No. <laughs> I would rather pay less for the comic. Uh, and not have this story because I don't know in the long run how much it's going to matter, but at least it's fun. So, yeah, I, I I really don't have much to add to what you said. Uh, honestly, I just sort of skim read this. I've, I I don't mind ambush bug, but I think DC lost the opportunity to make ambush bug a potentially interesting comedic character long ago. They've not, they've, they did, they didn't focus on him for, it seems to me like literally years. He pops up once in a blue moon in a in a one shot special or a Christmas special, and now he pops up here. What a nonsensical choice, to be very blunt. I I don't you know I could have I could have I could go the rest of my life and not read Ambush Bug if if I'm brutally honest. Although you know again, I mean I'm all for a good good laugh here and there. Uh, you know, Insect Noir is the title of this. It's kind of uh, the arts. The arts really good. Like I say, they're all tied in together, and I I think it's important that we get these types of stories. And I know I just contradicted myself. I know I just said I don't need to read this. On the other hand, this does stuff. I think it's important to develop the those those C and D list characters from time to time because I think in the long run they can pop up and they can shine. and And keeping that them on our radar is important. I just think right now again. At a time where DC is sort of like where they're at, I th- I just think it's a rather curious choice that uh, I would frankly I'd rather see you know why not you know we're in the middle of a DC vote well as a matter of fact we got we do have ambush bug on the DC vote don't we yeah yeah <laughs> crisis on sure. ambush bug Earth or whatever it is there yeah. <laughs> so you know if we're gonna get that. Hey, well, I guess maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe people will vote for Ambush Bug in the vote. Uh, I don't even remember if I did. I can't remember who. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to have our next uh, session on, uh, in light of uh, the the first round results. But whatever, mileage will vary here. All the power to Ambush Bug. I I personally would rather have a more organically developed Superman tale exploring the relationship between uh, John and his parents. Yep, agreed. Uh, all right, now we can go to Rorschach, uh, written by Tom King. We have uh, art by Jorge Fornes, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by uh, Clayton Cowles. Uh, and a, a legendary creator uh, who was name-dropped the last issue <laughs> plays a big role in this one. So what did you think, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I don't know if – let me see here if I can uh, – I was going to bring up – no, it doesn't look like it's going to work. But, yeah – well, the this uh, this breaks the fourth wall. Well, I guess it doesn't technically break the fourth wall. This Tom King makes a curious choice here. I, you know, this is a you and I 
we gave this sort of high marks the last time we were when we reviewed issue six. The the detective that's in investigating the the attempted assassination of the of uh, President uh, I guess Turney uh, Turley, and uh, of course well, it's not this, the president, not, not the president yet, running for president against right. President Rutherford. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, I I apologize. The, the candidate running, but in any right. event. There, the there's this Laura Cummings and this Willie Myerson were who was dressed up like Rorschach. They were the assassins that ended up being killed uh, after they uh, failed to succeed in in completing the assassination. And this detective who's in investigating the attempted uh, killing of uh, the candidate Turley, he ends up visiting this uh, this Frank Miller character. And what's what's interesting about this is that. This in a large a large part of this has to do with this Laura Cummings character. She ends up she ends up being a I guess she's a character whose role the role she played was she actually ended up uh, involving herself with Will Myerson and these other characters and this Otto Binder who was a comic writer with over twenty years experience who lost a daughter in a car accident and this Otto Binder is a character who seeks to communicate with his dead daughter through tape recordings where you where you put a tape recording on you ask the dead person a question and then you listen to the static afterwards and you try to hear an answer and if you listen long enough or repeatedly eventually you're going to hear something it's almost like the white noise thing like you see in the horror movies like when you stare at a tv with the white you know, with the white noise, eventually you're going to see an image. And this this sort of fascination with that, uh, Will Myerson and, and all the characters, and ultimately even this Frank Miller character ended up being uh, part of this sort of uh, Otto Binder's fascination with this. And uh, just as a... In, in the world of The Watchmen, the superhero comics are really replaced by pirate comics. Pirate comics are more popular than superhero comics. And Frank Miller ends up popping up as a character in this narrative. And he's known for a rise of the dark thief as opposed to rise of the dark knight in the narrative of this story. And, and the, and it's very interesting because even the, uh, even the, the primary, the, the primary character Instead of uh, uh, John King uses uh, metaphors and, and comparisons to our amazing fantasy. There's amazing. There's an amazing pirate book in in, in this in these pages as opposed to amazing fantasy, fantasy which is a, a, an allusion to the amazing to the amazing Spider Man. And Tom King's drawing all these analogies and and I think I I feel that it's almost cheap theatrics. It's completely unnecessary. Like, why do that? This is a decent enough story. I get it. This is a conspiracy-ridden... These are terrorists that were crazy, bound up in ridiculous conspiracy and listening to dead people on tapes. I get it. And this Laura Cummings manipulated people and this Frank Miller is is now dressing up like Rorschach because he was manipulated by her at one point. I can kind of get... I, I get the threads of the narrative, but... It's frustrating to me because for the life of me, I don't understand the point of drawing these analogies like this to the real world. We don't need this guy to look like Frank Miller. So why make him look like Frank Miller other than to try to get a cheap thrill or to get a temporary blip on the spec market? I have, 
it's it's the oddest thing to me. You know, Tom King is known for making for making allusions to other sources of literature in his Batman run, run he for example he repeatedly make references to other to other books and authors and he he was even he's been accused of plagiarism although it's not plagiarism because he, he does cite the source but he's well known for respecting and using other narrative sources to in an attempt to heighten his story but this is different this is utilizing a real life character for frankly, what I view is no actual narrative purpose that serves the story. He, it just seems to be literally for cheap theatrics. It's like, oh, I, I guess my story isn't good enough to attract, but one of my characters looks exactly like Frank Miller. And in the context of this story, I write about other comic book creators, and this guy's an allegory for Frank Miller. This guy's an allegory for Stan Lee. This guy's an allegory for Steve, uh, uh, Steve Gerber. But guess what? I'm using the real Frank Miller in it, and he looks just like him. And it's like, it's just cheap theatrics to me. And again, <laughs> I just sort of shake my head. Having said all that, I, I, I'm still with the story. I think it's well. I think the story is still interesting. I just don't understand the distraction with the Frank Miller thing. But hey, I guess if if you if you're that desperate for more sales, I, I thought sales on this title were pretty good. I thought it was always in the top ten. I didn't think you needed to resort to this. But overall, I still recommend this and I think people are gonna pick it up. But I gotta tell you, if you're picking this up just to see Frank Miller's face, you're gonna be lost by the narrative. If you haven't been reading this from issue one, good luck to you. Good luck piecing it together just reading this issue cuz there's a lot you got there's still, there's a lot you got to piece together in the previous 6 issues but all the power to you. But I'm on board. You you and I have been reading it from the first issue. I think it's still something there. I just I'm just sort of a little disappointed with the cheap theatrics. Yeah, I so I sort of agree with you, but I sort of disagree. Um because I I do <laughs> I did ask the question when Miller well, first of all, his name gets dropped, you know, last issue. And I was like, okay, well, that's not the biggest surprise. Tom King's been dropping the names of real comic book creators throughout the series. Um, for what purpose, we don't yet know. Although I, I have faith enough in Tom that I, I think he does have a purpose for doing it. Um, but have Miller show – and not even Miller. You mentioned Otto Binder. Uh, so he's, an, he's another classic Golden Age – real person yeah. <laughs> Otto Binder wrote tons of Superman stories he wrote tons of Justice League stories like he, a, a huge volume of work for DC Comics uh, and I can only I don't I, off the top of my head I don't know what Otto Binder looks like but I have to assume that Jorge <laughs> Fornes you know used photo reference or whatnot and what we get in the pages of the book is a close approximation of what Otto Binder looked like in real life when he was alive um and certainly it's clearly Frank Miller when he shows up. And yeah, I, I did find myself when he shows up on the first time, like, yeah, there's Frank Miller. Why? Why? Why, Tom? Um, so I think we will get an answer. I think that it is something that he's exploring. Um, and certainly he has explored it through Will Meyerson, who's not a, a, a real life character or real life person. Um, and he's talked a lot about sort of, you know, some, some existential thoughts of, you know, what's what's the value of the work? What are you trying to say? And and things like that. So so I get all that. And and if that's all it is, then then, yeah, I, I won't go so far as to say it's cheap theatrics, but I think it could be a little distracting to decide to put 
Frank Miller in, in the book that way, if it has a greater purpose and, and it's serving a greater purpose, then, then I'm all for it. Um, and I have to think it does because it's not just Frank Miller shows up, but isn't Frank Miller dressed as Rorschach for most of the issue? Yes. Is and and I'm, yeah. yeah. I, and I don't really understand why the Frank Miller character dressed up like Rorschach that was not never really explained other than the fact that apparently Laura Cummings before her death seemed to have influenced him. And I don't really understand why I, I, I you know, but I'm maybe that will be explained later on. But I, what I seemed odd is that the detective never seemed to react to the fact that when, 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 when the door is opened, all of a sudden this guy answers the door, Frank Miller answers the door dressed like Rorschach and the detective doesn't even flinch. And I thought, well, Aren't you at least going to say what the hell are you wearing that outfit for? I mean, it, it just it it just seemed like I, I really think that's a miss on on, on Tom on Tom King's uh, fault uh, part because that doesn't make a lot of sense. You would think the detective would at least react because this is the same. The guy is dressed in the same outfit that the terrorist was Will Myerson was when he attempted to assassinate uh, the candidate uh, candidate Turley. And so the whole thing just seemed really odd to me. And then it was played off so casually. And I just want to make one point. You know, some people might say to me, well, you know, why, why, why does this bother me so much? And not that it bothers me, but why, why do I think it's cheap theatrics? Because didn't Jeff Johns do that in Doomsday Clock? He mixed the DC Universe with the Watchmen Universe. And, and I didn't complain about that. That is, and I will just say that that's a completely different scenario. That actually was a story involving Superman and the DC Universe with the Watchmen Universe. The entire point of that narrative was crossing over between those two universes. This takes place entirely in the Watchmen Universe with that that has its own characters, its own sense, its own sensibilities, and to, and to have a complete reflection of our comic book creators in the Watchmen Universe. It's just. I don't know. It just it does take me out of the narrative a little bit here. And I know it's an unauthorized sequel, just like Doomsday Clock was. And I know Tom King can do whatever the hell he wants. It's it's an unauthorized sequel, whatever. But I just think, again, just cheap theatrics. I'm just I'm just shaking my head because I, I I didn't need this type of nonsense. It's pretty sad when the only time Bleeding Cool talks about this series is when there's a picture of Frank Miller in the, in the narrative. And that's that that's just sad. In my view, yeah. Again, I I think there's going to be a reason for it. I think it'll make sense in the end because I, I I trust Tom King and I'm I'm enjoying the series. Although I like you, I am a bit uh, a bit confused by it. Uh, and as far as no reaction, I mean, the detective does he he opens the door and he sees Frank Miller dressed as Rorschach and he does say, "Okay." So I mean, there is a little bit of a, a reaction. Wow. Uh, so you know, yeah, I. He might he just might be so stunned he doesn't know what to say. He might be just as surprised as us. Like <laughs> Yeah. So I, but I I mean, know. clearly it's not clearly it's not the real Frank Miller because like you said, he wrote uh you know Dark Fife, not Dark Knight. So, you know, there are some differences and I, I do trust Tom that it'll come back around and make sense uh in the end because I, I know he's trying to explore things like uh what it means to be a, a, a creator and, and create these worlds and create these characters. And uh, in a way he's kind of exploring and breaking down comics in the same way that Alan Moore did 
in the the Watchmen series the first time, you know, and everybody hails that as this, you know, the greatest comic story ever told, best graphic novel, whatever label you want to put on it. So I'm going to reserve judgment. I'm going to give Tom the benefit of the doubt because maybe he's exploring what it means to be a comic creator. And I think it's just too soon to say. Um, but yeah, I, I would be lying if I didn't have that. I didn't say I didn't have that same reaction of, wait, what? Wait, so why did you do this? I just think it's not clear yet. And I think it will be yeah. it will be made clear. Well, like um, I said, I'm, I'm on board, man. I, I, I'm definitely on board. I mean, he absolutely piqued my curiosity. So I'll give him kudos for that. But I just, I, I, I can't help but think that, you know, Alan Moore surely is just shaking his head because, I mean, obviously Alan Moore, who, who's the creator of Watchmen, he, I'm sure he, he, he doesn't agree with any sequel of his work anyway. But to be, I'd be really curious. It just seemed to me that to use, utilize Watchmen because you you have something to say about comic book creators, it just seems just kind of a very curious, odd approach to it. But but hey, if the story is good at the end, it's fine. I, I'm more cynical than you. I'm gonna be because look, I thought for sure Tom King was gonna nail the ending to Batman because I I thought surely to God if you're gonna go 85 issues, that you you're gonna you're gonna you had a plan, and it ended up that you didn't have a plan at all. So we'll see. We'll see if, in fact, because he's known for his 12-issue tales, and this is 12 issues long. This is seventh ish, the seventh issue. We'll see if he nails the landing on this. And so, we'll, you know, fingers crossed. Well, we've, yeah, we've talked before about how I don't agree with you about him not having a plan on Batman. I just think he didn't get to, <laughs> he didn't get to finish. He didn't get to finish his plan. He wrote this all together as one thing. He told me himself. You know, he didn't, you know, sit down and write issue one, issue two. He wrote this as one big story. And then divided it up into 12 parts. So I expect it to all make sense at the end. That's that's number one. Number two, uh, I don't agree with people who say Doomsday Clock is an unauthorized sequel. This is an unauthorized sequel. I, I get so tired of that narrative. The bottom line is, whether you agree with it or not, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons signed work for hire contracts with DC <laughs> or Watchmen that said, if it ever goes out of print, the rights will revert. Guess what? It's been the best-selling graphic novel of all time. It's not like DC ever let it. Oh, it's not selling, but we're going to keep it in print to screw Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. No, nobody held a gun to their head. They knew what they were signing. If they wanted the rights, they should have put that in the contract. I understand that creators over the years have gotten screwed by publishers. They haven't gotten what they've deserved. I understand all of that. Don't at me and tell me I'm a jerk and I don't, I'm not for creator rights. I get it. Right. But the bottom line is I don't feel that doomsday clock is a sequel in terms of, Hey, let's pick up the Watchmen story after the story that Alan Moore and Gibbons told. No doomsday clock just is set in the same universe in the Watchmen universe. This is set in the same universe in the Watchmen universe. This is not Tom King trying to go and say, I'm going to tell a direct sequel. I'm going to tell a continuation of the story that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons told. I don't think anybody has ever done that. The closest to that was the before Watchmen stuff. That's the stuff that's most derivative from what Moore and Gibbons did. So if you want to point to anything DC's done that quote unquote ripped off Moore and Gibbons or took advantage of them, that's the stuff you need to look at. So why this story exists, why Rorschach, why what Tom is going for, I just don't think we know yet. It's uh, we got to get the last five issues. We're only a little more than halfway there. 
And I'm enjoying the fact that I don't know where this is going or what Tom is trying to do, but I'm willing to go along for the ride uh, because it's enjoyable. And yes, I get it. It's, it's confusing. It's sort of a, a shocking moment to see a Frank Miller analog show up in this comic. But again, Tom has been putting comics and creators and uh, referencing real life comic creators throughout the, the run. And it's, I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. Uh, and I think he's got something to say about it. Uh, why is it a big deal here? Uh, and people can want to complain about it here. Oh, Frank Miller and blah, blah, blah. He's just trying to boost sales when Donnie Cates is doing it over there in crossover and everybody's loving that nobody calls out Donnie Cates for it. Is it, it, so is it all going back to, Hey, we all feel like Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons got the shaft. And I feel like whenever anybody tries to tell a story in the Watchmen universe, that's what it all comes down to. Everybody's got all this animosity toward DC as a corporate entity for not giving Watchmen back to Moore and Gibbons. And I get it. Maybe they deserve it. Maybe they created this incredible thing. I don't have the reverence for Watchmen that most people do. I think it's one of the most overrated comics ever, <laughs> to be honest. What? I think it's, I think it's fine. <laughs> but, man, with the way people talk about it, like it's the best thing ever, I just don't see it. I'm sorry. I've read it multiple times. I've analyzed it. I've talked about it on the podcast. I moderated a debate between you and Trevor. I just don't get it. You know, I hear other people complain about comics like, Walking Dead or Invincible or this comic or that comic or whatever. And I'm like, but Watchmen's the greatest thing ever? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just stupid. Maybe I, I'm too dumb to understand how revelatory and well, groundbreaking Watchmen was. I, well, I, I, I would, I, I don't, you know, I, I can't disagree with you on that. I mean, obviously we, we, we can, I, I, I'm, this is not a hill I'm going to die on here. I, I don't disagree with you per se. I don't think Watchmen is the greatest thing on the the greatest story ever told either. Uh, although I do think it is, it, it did change the industry and uh, and it, ha it left I its mark. But I I will say though that I just it just seems it it does. I just I. I it just feels like cheap theatrics to me. I mean, it just seems like you're you want to tell a comic book sale, uh, comic books. You want to tell a comic book story about comic book artists, and so what's the best way to do that? Well, use the best selling graphic, use the setting of the best selling graphic novel of all time, because I can't make the story work any other way. That's well, where I, I think. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how else. You, I don't know how else you do it. If you're gonna tell this at DC, if you're gonna tell a story that's meta at DC of all their universes and properties they own which is the one that's more closely an analog to the real world, no, the world of enough. Watchmen where yeah. nobody actually, except for Dr. Manhattan has any superpowers. So in that way, it's the closest thing. Could they have done this black label and not use Rorschach or any of the thing, you know, sure. then yeah, they could have, but I will say, and Tom King is a huge fan and it was hugely influenced by the HBO Watchmen TV series by setting it in the Watchmen universe and by using characters like Rorschach and referencing Dr. Manhattan and also sort of the cynical view of the world that the Watchmen universe has, he's, he's building in some background and some syntax for the story automatically. Yeah. So he's taking a bit of a shortcut there. If you want to call him out for that, then I guess, you know, go right ahead, but it does give him sort of a leg up where he can get into the meat of the story sooner rather than, you know, try to establish, yeah. okay, this is a world where uh, things are cynical and, uh, you know, 
there's well, you know the all superheroes that are pirates and and just like it's astonishing suspense instead of amazing fantasy right, so exactly. he did a good job like I'm, I'm i i will give him full props for for building on the mythology of the Watchmen universe from a comic book creator perspective, saying that these were the this is how comic book creators this was the history of comic books in the Watchmen universe, focusing on pirates instead of superheroes, and that it builds from there. And Will Myerson is sort of like the the Jack Kirby or the Stan Lee sort of analog character. I'd and then, say Steve. I'd say maybe Steve Ditko. I think might have been what he was going oh, for. Fair enough, Steve. Uh, yeah. I thought I I think some of the articles mentioned Gerber Ditko. I I, I don't. You know, I don't. Uh, fair enough, but in any event, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it is what it is. I just, you know, again, and I'm, 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 I would enjoy this story regardless of whether that was there or not. It just seemed to me to be. I sort of chuckled a little bit. It's like, well, okay, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I didn't yeah, need I, that, but. <laughs> and you might be, you might be right. In the end, it might just be a cheap, you know, a cheap trick, uh, for lack of a better term. That I, I, I just, I'm holding out. I'm I'm holding out judgment. I'm reserving judgment until I get get more because if Tom doesn't have a reason for specifically using Frank Miller, then okay, yeah, probably could should have just been some throwaway character, no name character. Um, but if he has a specific reason, then you know maybe well, it needed to I'll, be. I'll tell you what's going to happen, Jace. The next, the first comic book convention you go to where Frank Miller's at, you can bet he's going to be dressed up as Rorschach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't. No, uh, just no. Like Frank Miller would never. Yeah, Frank Miller. He he's he's a legend, uh, and I I know a lot of people get intimidated meeting him the first time, and I'm talking about like, uh, you know, fellow creators. Um, but he he, Frank kind of suffers no fools. I can't ever imagine him dressing up. And well, I, I would imagine I I can only I can only hope that Tom King asked for Mr. Miller's blessing before he embarked oh, on sure. the storyline. I'm sure. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. I don't think Tom. He's going to go would. Dark Knight on his ass if he's not careful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, there's a couple of other DC books coming out today that we uh, we're not going to cover, but I'll I'll mention them. Uh, Sweet Tooth: The Return, number six, uh, from Jeff Lemire, and also uh, American Vampire, 1976, number seven. That's Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque's uh, creator-owned book. That number seven, that's next to last issue of uh, what is supposed to be or touted as being the last uh, American vampire story that Scott Snyder is ever going to tell. And I think that Sweet Tooth of Return, I, that's a six-issue mini, I think. So I think that's the last – pretty the sure last that's issue, the last issue. Yes. Of that. Yeah, yeah, so uh, – but yeah, that that rounds out the, uh, the DC books that are uh, on stands today. So yeah, overall, a pretty solid week. Um, it's just disappointing to me that the – the book I want to be good the most is the worst book of the week, which is Superman. Uh, but yeah, Rorschach I thought was was pretty solid. But my book of the week is actually, I guess I got to give it to Joker. Um, although that Matthew Rosenberg Grifter might have been the single best story, but uh, you know, there's other stories in there that I, I didn't enjoy as much. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't believe. And I wasn't, here's the thing too. I wasn't even going to buy Joker. I specifically put it out there saying I'm not spending money on Joker. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was Mark Brooks. The fact that he did a cover that got me to pick up the first issue or pre-order the first issue. And then, you know, I, I read my, my preview copy and just fell in love with it. And now I can't <laughs> believe how much I'm enjoying a, a title called the Joker, but 
you know, just like we said in the first go round with the first issue, it's more a Jim Gordon story than a, than it is a Joker story. So, yeah. Well, I, I, I love this discussion. I, this was a great week and, uh, like I even enjoyed Rorschach issue. I enjoyed even talking about the controversy with Frank Miller in it. Joker, the second issue of Joker was the, I agree with you was the best, best of the week. Uh, the grifter story by Matthew Rosenberg. I agree with you there. We're in agreement. I also, as the speculator side of me guys, it's a great week for speculators and key first appearances. Uh, first full appearance of vengeance, daughter of Bane, first appearance of V Ross in the Oracle backup of Batman urban legends. The first appearance of chance, Adibi in the, uh, in the uh, grifter backup in Batman Urban Legends, uh, the revelation that Jason Todd uh, killed the drug, uh, his a drug pusher when his mother, when he was younger, uh, that was feeding drug, giving drugs to his mother. And there, I think Oracle's outfit, I think that's the first appearance as well. I, th- I don't think we've seen the last of Oracle's outfit with all the high-tech gadgetry, that, that Adidas high-tech outfit that she was wearing, beautifully drawn by, by Marie uh, Savage. Uh, just overall a very impressive week for DC and one that I, you know, again, other than future state uh, ruining some of these endings, which uh, we'll, we'll see uh, if that will happen. I, th- I think DC so far is getting getting some definitely more than passing grade for me. Well, you forgot one one first appearance. What's that? Which I, I don't know if this is actually the first appearance of Frank Miller in a comic oh, book. <laughs> it's, so, it's, how could I forget? <laughs> it's the first Frank Miller as Rorschach. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. How could I forget that? That's what everyone's talking about. My God. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 you know, I wish I could be the first person to take Frank Miller a copy of Rorschach number one and ask him to sign it. <laughs> yeah, he'd yeah, probably say, be- hey, that looks just like me. <laughs> yeah, that's, those are the pajamas I wear to bed at night. Fantastic, fantastic. So, yeah, right. a pretty solid week. Uh, be sure you reach out on social media and let us know what your thoughts were uh, on these issues. Uh, if you're checking this out on the Comic Boom YouTube channel, be sure you uh, hit that like button, uh, smash that subscribe button. Make sure you're uh, following Rocky for all his uh, uh, not only DC Spotlight but all the other uh, coverage that he does, and hit that notification bell so you uh, you'll know when new uh, issues come out. Uh, the comic source is available on all podcast platforms, so we appreciate everybody listening as always. Uh, uh, I hope you all checked out our uh, our Stephanie Phillips interview that uh, Rocky and I did. Uh, it was released yesterday, as you're watching or hearing this, uh, on, for AfterShock Monday. It was a great chat with Stephanie. She had a blast talking about all her various projects. She's awesome. Uh, so- yeah, she's super talented, rising star. So definitely encourage you to uh, to give that a look. Uh, any other episodes you have coming out this week that you want to give a shout out for, Rocky? Uh, I just released this morning. I released a review of uh, Douglas Ernst's uh, Soul Finder Dark Tide. It's a story of uh, two Catholic, Roman Catholic priests battling the devil and doing exorcisms. And it uh, brings virtue back to uh, superhero comics. And I quite enjoyed it. And I feel free people to check out my review it's uh on my channel same channel at uh, comic boom with an exclamation mark same place where i'll be posting uh this this video alongside uh, with a link to your podcast which will also be playing the podcast version of this yep exactly and uh, i just want to uh, you know all our regular uh, episodes will be coming out this week but i specifically want to give a shout out to our kickstarter spotlight this week we are scarlet twilight there's about a week left Really cool golden age sort of Buck Rogers feel. So be sure you give that a listen and go check out the campaign if you want to uh, join. So uh, once again, I want to thank everybody for uh, for listening or watching. We appreciate all your support and we'll talk to you next time. 
See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.